Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. dumbfounded by this bill. How, how is it that Bill Clinton has not been canceled by the Democratic? How has he survived all of these waves of cancellation when he has been one of the biggest violators of these rules at all these years? I mean, we, we talked last night about the use of character. We talked, about, we, talked about the use of, listen, we talked about the use of character to try to say Donald Trump is a man of low character, Joe Biden. Is, okay, fine. Trump is fine. If that's, that's, he's fair game on that. It's totally fine. So you're going to say that in one breath and then say, character matters. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Clinton. I mean, I, I, does this make sense to anyone? If you want Republicans to vote for Joe Biden, having Bill Clinton talk about character and oh not having God. drama how, how in the Oval Office, is that the right this? answer? Okay, this has already been asked and answered decades ago. The point is that Bill Clinton is excellent at explaining stuff, especially the things that matter to everyday people. Like oh, he's excellent jobs. at things. That's Bill true. Clinton, <laughs> Bill Clinton's administration was an incredible job creator. They did an incredible job at reducing the deficit. He ended up with a surplus. So he's going to talk about the things that everyday citizens care about in the great way that, and use the, his great way of explaining it to make sure that people understand the reality that Democrats are better on the economy. I, but I don't want to duck the question, though. Um, you were talking about Bill Clinton's character. And... What I admire about Bill Clinton is that he has acknowledged his wrongdoing. He's apologized. He's tried to, to rebuild his family. And I think apologies don't come as often or as easily uh, from the present White House, even when they should. So I don't, I don't, think, we can, we, I don't think we have to uh, say everything Bill Clinton has done is great, but I do think that when he has made mistakes, he's acknowledged them. And I admire him for that. Who else are you are you looking to hear from t tonight, Van? I mean, uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is is uh, is going to be speaking, I think, uh, br uh, for short short speech. And welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast. It's the twenty second of August, year of our Lord twenty twenty, and this is going to be a fun podcast. I dug into the DNC convention, and what did I find? Some crazy -ass shit. Thanks to Tucker Carlson, actually he highlighted it as in a lot of conservatives did and then i went and downloaded which was not easy because they were hiding this shit it's not what they wanted to put on tv anyway so we're going to do a, a quick uh catch up on a few subjects going to the dnc convention a lot of sound bites today do a deep dive on the ugly side of the dnc convention which relates really well to the violence which is what we'll segue into, and a few woke things, but not a whole lot today. It'll be a long podcast, and we start it with the most important thing that we talked about last time. Somebody had the balls to say it on there. Of course, Granholm actually defended it as in, well, how long are we going to go back to his transgressions? The motherfucker was on Pedo Island. But I would be remiss if I also didn't start with Billie Eilish, because as Keith Boykin says, 
How are Billie Eilish, John Legend, Common, Jennifer Hudson, Carrie Washington, Eva Lagoria, Tracy Ellis Ross, and the chicks at the Dem convention going to compete with the star power of Scott Baio and Chuck Woolery at the Republican convention? It was another one of those, oh, well, we have celebrities. So because we have celebrities, America's with our candidate. And then the whole world goes, you're clueless if you think rich Hollywood elites have sway over voters. Just ask Hillary. In 2016, she had Beyonce, Jay-Z, J. Cole, Chance the Rapper, and Big Sean perform Cleveland. But she lost Ohio. Convention and entertainers don't help you win. I would tell you right up front and to the point, if this is who you thought was going to make America vote for Joe, you're sorely, sorely mistaken. You don't need me to tell you things are a mess. Donald Trump is destroying our country and everything we care about. We need leaders who will solve problems like climate change and COVID, not deny them. Leaders who will fight against systemic racism and inequality. And that starts by voting for someone who understands how much is at stake. Someone who's building a team that shares our values. It starts with voting against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden. Silence is not an option and we cannot sit this one out. We all have to vote like our lives and the world depend on it because they do. That girl has three different colored hair. She looks like she was stoned. She's like 16. She can't even vote. James Wood sums it up. I did admire Evil and Goyer's heroic attack on income inequality. Not a lot of women with a net worth of $80 million will share their pain so openly. Brave. They're, they're just idiots. And, and then there's the postal. It, it just hasn't stopped. There was even hearings, remote hearings. Say it directly. Is this an attempt by the president, do you believe, to interfere in the election? Absolutely. That are choking the post office, slowing it down. Uh, They will destroy the postal service. They'll do it because they don't want people to vote. This is nothing but a naked power grab to make sure that he can't be voted out of office. Do you yet have any evidence? What, if any, evidence have you seen? I can tell you, based on my reporting, we only have reports so far of these machines being removed. You want to look at where those machines were taken down. What precincts were these machines taken down? How many mailboxes were removed? Where are the mail sorting machines? What did you replace them with? Are they being replaced? We're on to everything he's doing. All of this seems perfectly planned to uh, disenfranchise people. That's absolutely what this is. I mean, it's incredibly widespread. It's affecting every single uh, region of the country. If he does not win, he's going to say uh, that it was a fraudulent election. It is a massive effort at voter suppression in front of our eyes. And quite frankly, if you keep this slowdown happening, people will die. Talking about mortality because of this postal crisis. He is, in effect, putting his knee uh, on the neck of American democracy. This will be the shame of the Republican Party for generations. This is a crisis. It's shocking. It is terrifying. It's absolutely disgusting. It's personal. I mean, I I started writing, like, I was writing all these thank you notes when the show started. Mm. And I've got people now who just got them. I've been on for four weeks. They say this is normal business procedure, that these machines are being removed and reallocated. In a statement to NBC News, the Postal Service, with a straight face, has described this move as normal business adjustments. Normal business adjustments. 
no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. We're being told that you're limiting overtime, uh, and this uh, could possibly add to backlogs. Are you are you limiting overtime, or is that being suspended right now, and people will work overtime if necessary to move the mail out efficiently every single day? Senator, I, we never eliminated overtime. That's uh, it's been not, curtailed significantly, is what I understand. It has not been curtailed by me or the leadership team here. Curtailed significantly. It's gone down. It's been limited. Will you commit to spent seven since I've been here? We've spent seven hundred million dollars on overtime. Overtime runs at a thirteen percent rate before I got here, and it runs at a thirteen percent rate now. I did not. If you have a policy, you can submit that to me. I'd appreciate it. Many questions that you and the committee may have. Well, thank you for that opening statement, Mr. Postmaster General. Uh, I just want to kind of go through and uh, give you a chance to respond to some of these false narratives. First of all, let's talk about that election notice that was sent out by, I believe, the Postal Services General Counsel. Uh, one notice before you became Postmaster General, uh, one notice, I think, after you assumed your, your duties. Uh, talk about what that notice was about and, uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, how, how important it was that uh, the Postal Service does inform election officials of what your basic capabilities are so they can factor that into their deadlines. Yes, sir. Thank you, buddy for the opportunity to, to speak about this. First, I'd like to emphasize that there has been no changes in any policies with regard to election mail uh, 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 for, the, for the 2020 election. Uh, as, as you stated, uh, the, this letter was sent out before my, before my arrival simply to help educate state election boards and eventually the American people uh, there was a plan put together to eventually make this a broader statement so the American people had awareness on uh, how to, uh, you know, how to successfully vote. This letter, pretty very similar letter, was sent out in the 2016, 2016 election by the former Deputy Postmaster General. We recognize that during, uh, 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 during this uh, p pandemic, when I arrived, there was great concern about the increase in, in, in volume, so we, we further emphasized uh, the the interaction we had over fifty thousand contacts before my arrival with state election boards uh, uh, to uh, help help them understand the mail processing uh, uh, procedures uh, of the postal service. Since my arrival, we we have I've we've established and extended a task force. We have uh, put up a website or putting up a website within a within within a day. Uh, and we are diligently working to, uh, to to ensure the American public and to ensure a, a successful election. Tom Elliott made that montage. How Trump's sinister plot is unfolding. One, after refusing to resign, he also refused to be impeached. Two, to save America, Dems announced a reasonable plan to completely remake the way elections are conducted, which involves dramatically expanding the post office. Three, Trump said no. The left are getting more unhinged every day. Share. Can people volunteer at the post office? No, I'm not kidding. Can I volunteer at my post office? Okay, call two post offices in Malibu. They were polite. I said, hi, this is Cher, and I'd like to know if you can ever take volunteers. Lady said she didn't know and gave me a number of supervisor. I called and he said, hi, this is Cher. Do you accept volunteers? No. Need fingerprints or background checks. Is no one going to help me with the post office? They're insane. 
This conspiracy theory is only out there because they found out the man donated to Trump Super PAC. And because we're in a country where you can donate to the left all day long, we have sound bites today. The NRA is a fake charity, but Planned Parenthood gives 10 times the amount of money to Democrats. They don't even report it. And that's the gist. It's the media. They will play like Republicans are psychos and the left are patriots who just want to move America forward. Forward, I say. Here's Brian Seltzer about QAnon again. Guys, are so you don't believe in the First Amendment? Oh, I totally believe in the First Amendment. Well, you don't. You're just a depressed Well, you guys are weaponized. You guys are totally weaponized by the CIA. What is that? So I, it would be actually kind of funny if it wasn't as something that had real-world world consequences. You may remember a few years back, a uh, person showed up uh, heavily armed to a pizza parlor in Washington believing that uh, I think one of the Clintons was running a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of the pizza parlor. They showed up with weapons to liberate uh, the uh, pizza parlor. There were no children being held captive there. The guy's now in jail. Uh, QAnon supporters accused of murdering a mafia boss in a really weird case. Another one uh, was arrested for threatening to kill Joe Biden. And yet, a supporter of this movement just won a Republican primary in Georgia. She's also a 9-11 truther, doesn't believe a plane went into the Pentagon, and is favored to win a seat in Congress in November. A former DHS official, oh, and the president says that person is a bright future star of the Republican Party. Guess why the president refused to do the easy thing? A former DHS official, by the way, who's endorsing Biden after calling the president a danger, uh, guessed why the president uh, was unwilling to, you know, basically distance himself from QAnon. He pretended not to know anything about the whole cannibalism, child sex trafficking, uh, oh, Satan worshipers. Yeah, here's what he said. If we've learned one lesson about Donald Trump, it's that he thinks if something aligns with his personal interests, it is good. If it doesn't align with his personal interests, it is bad. In the case of things like QAnon and conspiracy theories, as long as they support and reinforce the president's worldview, he will embrace them with a full hug. But if someone walks into his office with a contrary worldview uh, or something to dispel a conspiracy theory, they won't get over the threshold without a full cavity search, okay? This president isn't interested in truth. He's interested in his truth. And you know how the reason you can know that's true? We're joined by Brian Seltzer, Chief Media Correspondent. Brian, you know, you can tell what he said is true because the first thing the president said when asked about QAnon yesterday Mm -hmm. said, they say very, you know, they say very nice things about me. And that's, for him, that is... That's the number one bullet point on QAnon. It doesn't matter that they say these slanderous, outrageous, insane, you know, things based on anti-Semitic tropes about a cabal of, of, you know, Democrats drinking the blood of children, which is literally something, you know, Nazis said about Jews uh, long ago. It's extraordinary that the president of the United States now doesn't have the moral courage to, to even, you know, stand up and just say, you know what, this is ridiculous. 
and he's claimed that he doesn't know what QAnon is all about, but he has retweeted uh, Twitter accounts that promote this idea, and there are lots of QAnon supporters that used to show up at his rallies back when they had rallies wearing QAnon paraphernalia. It is very hard to imagine that the president doesn't know what this is about, but whether he does or not, it's disgraceful. If he doesn't know, he needs to know, because too many of his supporters are buying into these lies, spreading these lies, and endangering fellow Americans. And if he does know what it's about, and he's winking and nodding to them, that is incredibly dangerous. I hear, I hear Anderson sometimes talk about this as a conspiracy theory. They say it's just a conspiracy theory. No. This is a virtual cult. This is dangerous to the country, dangerous for Trump supporters, as well as for Trump's opponents, because it buys into the looniest ideas on the fringe, but because people like President Trump are giving winks and nods, it is no longer fringe. It is becoming mainstream. Right. Again, they believe a, a group of Hollywood celebrities and Democratic leaders are torturing children, trafficking in children, and then harvesting their blood uh, for some sort of a chemical that's supposedly in their blood that will keep, I guess, the people... <laughs> young or something? I, I, I'm not sure why the whole blood It should not thing. be hard to denounce this. Yeah. If you're a GOP leader, it should not be hard to denounce this. I interviewed uh, Adam uh, Kinzinger the other day. He's one of the only GOP congressmen speaking out about this problem. Conspiracy theory thinking. I understand why it happens. People want to get wrapped up in, cra in crazy ideas. They go down rabbit holes on the internet, on Facebook and Twitter. People need to be helped away from this nonsense. Facebook and Twitter, by the way, are both removing QAnon-aligned accounts. But frankly, I Anderson, it's probably too late. This stuff has been spreading for years, and now even the president is being asked about it. It's our media. They set this stuff up, and people go fucking crazy. That's why we have so much violence in our goddamn streets. So QAnon's a bunch of psychos, but actually believing the United States Post Office is trying to get Trump elected after their union supported Biden. Yeah. So we're going to go into narrative. That's what we're going to cloak this. But before we get there, you're going to hear some sound bites. I was going to play the Jake Tapper because there's a theme going on while we were doing this convention. The convention is just everybody's awesome. These are the greatest speakers everywhere. The DNC is so amazing. And then in the background, the narrative is the GOP is dark and divisive. Jake Tapper, who I'm not playing once again, literally asked a congressman who's now part of the Never Trump crew, Are the, is the GOP just a party of bigots? He said that on TV. That's what he said. But it's like 10 minutes long, so I'm not playing it. I'm going to play MSNBC blames racism for voters referring Trump on the economy over Biden. And then CBS actually pestering Pence for the way Trump has run the company or the country. You'll then hear our new narrative bump and you'll hear right off the bat all the love for the dear leader, the chosen one, Barack Hussein Obama. You've got to understand what that hook is that keeps them on the fence. You've got to understand what what it will take to get them off the fence. I would contend to you that the hook, one of those hooks, is the economy. Um, despite yeah, that the economy is flatlined and crashed and all of that, 
Tell me why there's still a 10 point advantage to the president. They're not making the same assessment that a lot of the, you know, the quote, smart money or the smart people are making that about this and saying. But what reality is that rooted in, Michael, is what I'm asking. It's rooted in their reality. It's rooted in their reality. They they feel whatever they're feeling, whatever they're taking away from it, they still give that kind of advantage to the president. And I think the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party and those who are uh, ancillary to that have to understand at its core, what is it that's making these folks still, still think and tick in that direction? Um, I'm not saying that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they will or won't move. Uh, off of Donald Trump. What I am saying is, if you want to run the kind of campaign you're going to need to win, you're going to have to understand that element of this as well. Because when you look at all the other metrics, Biden is leading. But a 10-point, given everything that we've seen on on the economy, having a 10-point edge for Trump, you've got to understand why that is. I think this this is where things get really interesting, because I wonder, is it actually the economy then that maybe they're just using the economy as a stand in for another feeling that they have Ah. about Donald Trump? So when the Biden team tries to figure out what is it that's going to make them feel more confident with Biden and vote for him, should they be looking at the economy or should they be looking at something else? Uh, Katie, that's why I like it, Katie. You, you, You got your finger on the underside of that question. That's exactly right. Is this polling on the economy, a stand-in for something that's a little bit deeper, that goes a little bit further down than we're looking. And I, and the key for me is what the president said the last few weeks. What's been his appeal in his approach the last few weeks? Specifically to white women, specifically to white suburban women, right? They're coming for your homes. They're coming for your communities. At the end of that, at that economic rainbow for these folks lies the ugliness of fear of others lies the ugliness of fears of my neighborhood, my community changing in a way I may not want and certainly I would not express in polite company. So yeah, that's part of understanding what that 10 point number is telling us or saying, or specifically to your point, Katie, is hiding. Uh, Trump knows, he has at least has a sense about that. And there's a reason why you've got to pay attention to how he talks and what he says, um, particularly to suburban voters. This is where polling can only go so far. Uh, Michael right. Steele, thank you for the beginnings of a conversation that we've, we should be having more often. Joe Biden uh, claims that the administration has, in his words, cloaked America in darkness, in anger, in fear, in division. You mentioned the violence in the streets. There's also partisanship at record levels, hate crimes at record levels. On the point of division and anger, does the vice president have a point? Well, I I found not just uh, those words by Joe Biden last night, but so many of the speeches at the Democratic National Convention were so negative They presented such a grim vision for America. And I think next week, what you're going to hear is we're going to talk about the first three years of this administration where we rebuilt our military. We stood with our allies, stood up to our enemies. We destroyed ISIS, took down their leader, took down the most dangerous terrorist in the world in Qasem Soleimani. You're going to hear how we revived this economy, not through higher taxes that Joe Biden called for last night, but by cutting taxes, rolling back regulation, unleashing energy. Mr. Vice President, all of those points I'm sure you will make next week at the convention. I want to get your comments on the possibility for a free and fair election. 
the president has been undercutting confidence in our election system actually for years now, uh, saying it will be rigged, it'll be corrupt, and the only way that you guys can lose is if there's some sort of cheating. Respectfully, where is the evidence of ballot fraud? Well, I think there's lots of evidence of ballot fraud and instances across the there's country. There's not, Mr. Vice President. Oh, sure there is, Tony. Check out Indiana, 2012, the state of Indiana. People were prosecuted uh, for manufacturing uh, ballots in the state of Indiana. And it's happened around the country. And the reality is that when people look at, at voter fraud, you're more likely to be it struck was election by lightning fraud. Uh, than people find a case People were prosecuted for election and, and, fraud, Tony. You can paper over that. And that's the system that. working, Mr. People Vice who were associated own- with a Democrat super PAC were manufacturing election documents and they were prosecuted. That's also happened in places like New Jersey and around the country. Ask yourself, who's framing this story? Ask yourself... What are they selling you? I want you to ask yourself that, am I just reflexively accepting that narrative that, remember, stories are not just what we read in books and we see in movies. Stories really do shape our worldview, and we cannot let them do so uncritically. We also saw, saw a truly unprecedented moment, the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, delivering a scathing, a scathing attack against the current president of the United States, President Trump. Uh, this was a moment that uh, we, we anticipated that, there, that this would unfold, but not to the degree that it has unfolded. I've been watching President uh, Obama, for example, since 2004, deliver speeches. This may have been the most powerful address he ever gave, a presidential address to the nation, not only strongly supporting the Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden right now, but going after the sitting president of the United States. And Jake, you don't see that very often. I've studied American history a long time. I don't remember a time when the immediate past president was going after the sitting president the way he did. No, I agree. And I'll talk about uh, President uh, Obama in a second. But first, I don't think we can overstate how significant a moment it is uh, for the girls and women and people of color in the United States and around the world watching this event tonight. What a historic moment for Kamala Harris, a senator from California, uh, to get the party nomination uh, for vice president. It really is truly historic and, and uh, one of these moments that is going to change people's lives and inspire people uh, because of the groundbreaking nature of that. Uh, the, in terms of the contents of her speech, uh, it was interesting. She introduced herself to the, to the American people. Uh, there was a lot of uh, very progressive uh, messaging going on there in terms of uh, systemic racism and, and ideas like that. For the younger people, for the progressives, I think that the Democrats need to turn out, talking uh, more about problems in America than about problems uh, with President Trump. I think she only mentioned Trump uh, by name once. On the other hand, perhaps she thought she didn't really need to go after him, given all the work that President Obama did uh, going after uh, Donald Trump, basically saying that democracy is at stake. As you noted, Wolf, uh, it was a, 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 an unprecedented speech to have uh, the immediate past president go uh, speak at a convention and talk about Basically, this is a four-alarm fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to defeat this this guy. Uh, and and Dana, I mean, I I don't know that this has happened uh, any time in the last uh, quarter, you know half century. 
No, I mean, the, the, President Obama made clear he believes that this is an existential threat. And when I say this, he was talking about his successor, the man in the White House right now. I mean, you almost saw it as a break glass in case of an emergency moment. And he was breaking the glass, saying this isn't just about politics. This is about the fundamentals of democracy. And you're exactly right. It wasn't just about really you know, going at Donald Trump, which he did in a pretty uh, stunning way. Uh, but it was much bigger, much broader. Uh, and President Obama, you know, he's always been a great speaker. He's always been a great orator. Uh, but he really uh, delivered tonight in going out and, 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 and A, uh, making it clear that he, he loves Joe Biden and thinks Joe Biden will be a, a great president. He loves, loves Kamala Harris, thinks she'll be a great vice president. But in going after the sitting president of the United States, suggesting that the failures of President Trump the failures uh, have resulted in 170,000 American lives lost from coronavirus. Suggested the failures of President Trump have resulted now in millions of Americans losing their jobs. And he says the failures of President Trump are now endangering the American democracy. Abby, uh, th these were powerful words from the former president of the United States. He didn't mince... Yeah, uh, talking about 1776, he said, what we do the next 76 days will echo through generations to come. That's a theme he repeated uh, actually twice in this speech. I mean, uh, Neemalika Henderson, a history-making speech from Kamala Harris and really a history-shaking speech by uh, President Obama, just an extraordinary speech. You know, Anderson, in just watching this unfold tonight, I have to say that watching Barack Obama, this was not a convention speech. This was sort of the new definition of the fierce urgency of now. And I could see him uh, in the Oval Office. It was intimate and it was chilling and he was declaring a national emergency. And what he was doing was saying, I need you to save democracy. Nothing less. Yes, he talked about what he believes, et cetera, et cetera. But this was on a higher plane. This was the emergency. And he is saying, you know, you've got to do this now. And you could you could see it in his voice. In, you could see yeah, it in him. Let me just read a couple of lines yeah, that everything yeah. depends on the outcome of this election. Yes. 76 days. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. Make a plan right now. He talked to to white factory workers, to black mothers, right. to new immigrants, to, to young people. Uh, and again, he repeated that refrain, what we do echoes through the generation. Right. And, and so he so he's saying, don't let them do this to our country. They can't take the democracy away from us. And so this was sort of a, a creed de corps. I don't know what you want to call it, but but a president talking to the country, former president talking to the. He took his shots at Donald Trump, but mostly this was a speech about democracy. And what a setting in Philadelphia, the city of our founding, the 1776 Declaration of Independence, the museum that holds those documents. There he was saying in the starkest terms, do not let them take away your democracy. And the unprecedented attack by Barack Obama on his predecessor is something that he had resisted doing until John Lewis's funeral. But he really came out tonight against Donald Trump. 
Pretty amazing, but he said democracy is at stake. Barely restrained passion there from Barack Obama, calling on a new generation of Americans to echo the ancestors who made our democracy work. It will be eloquent, but it will also have edge. I remember the night that he accepted the, the nomination from the party, what that said to my mother, a, a, a black woman. I think now this historic night, his presence, what it says uh, about his tenure, but also what it potentially says about Kamala Harris and what that says about America. This was a speech about Donald Trump and the fact that what he is doing is going to tear democracy apart. You can't raise the stakes any higher. This was the most um, powerful get-out-the-vote message that's ever been delivered from a convention. And yet Jamal, too, while not only endorsing Joe Biden in a personal sense about his empathy and kindness and being the man needed for the moment, at the same time, Barack Obama imploring young people, offering hope. President Obama's speech tonight slayed me. Um, I'm sure people have different opinions about it because it's a different kind of thing from him. But his warnings that we could potentially be at the end of American democracy um, scared me and I found upsetting and hard to watch. Um, but it's powerful, powerful stuff. This was the, the, the speech that Obama has given throughout all the speeches I've read or watched that absolutely did feel like the most of a warning. Mm -hmm. And I think it was warning about the potential end of America. And I mean, that seems dramatic when people say it and people throw around, if we have one, four more years of Trump, the country will end. But there is a fundamental sense that if you break every institution that made it possible for there to be a Barack Obama, it will. I have to tell you, you know, it's, it's part of reporting this case, uh, uh, this election. The feeling most people get when they hear a Barack Obama speech, my, I felt this thrill going up my leg. I well, mean, I don't have that too often. Steady. No, seriously. It's a dramatic event. He speaks about America in a way that has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the feeling we have about our country. And, I, and, and that is... Do you remember what Oprah said after that? Mm -mm. He's the one. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. She, and like, poor John Kerry was like, but I'm the one. <laughs> This is supposed to be mm. Barack Obama was a state senator yeah. running for the United States Senate in 2004 when he gave yeah. that keynote. He was a state senator. I remember I was at the time hosting a talk radio show on Air America with Chuck D, with Chuck D, Republican yes. and Liz Winstead from The Daily Show. And we all came in the next day and we're like, I can't we can't play any of it. Yeah, because like none of us were all softies. <laughs> none of us could play like even a couple lines about it without just sitting there being like, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Who is this guy? Yeah. I mean, it just it slayed you. Yeah. Can I just tell you, you I was, how it endured. I mean, yeah. look, look, I mean, you could you could you could he could re-rack that speech and yeah. just play that. And give it Peter, I understand there's some new information about President Obama's speech for this evening. Yeah, Lester, that's right. President Obama will deliver tonight's searing speech from the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. In many ways, the birthplace of the country. That location chosen, I'm told by those close to the former president, to underscore that it's our very democracy at stake in this election. But Barack Obama's speech tonight, I think this is as important to Joe Biden as Bill Clinton's speech in 2012 was to Barack Obama's re-election here. Keep an eye on this speech because here's another aspect of it, Lester. Donald Trump will obsess over it, so it will make Obama's speech even more important and more, perhaps, uh, a, a bigger deal to Joe Biden going forward. Just hours from now, former President Barack Obama, speaking from Philadelphia, the birthplace of American democracy, will argue that very democracy is on the line in this election.
Obama expected to attack his successor in searing, unprecedented terms. Excerpts of his speech charge President Trump has never taken the job seriously. Quote, he's shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends, no interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show. Obama will say the, quote, consequences of that failure are severe. 170,000 Americans dead. Millions of jobs gone. Our worst impulses unleashed. Our proud reputation around the world badly diminished. And our democratic institution... That lady talking was at a TED Talk. And of course, that was totally angled towards the right and the right media. And I co-opted it and put it on cult of personality. I think it's the perfect bumper for narrative the left projects everything Barack Hussein Obama is the first president really to go out there and continually disparage the sitting president of the United States Republicans don't do this Democrats used to not do it but then Clinton started and put his toe in the water and of course it came out for his wife and then we just go all the fuck in we are a hundred percent He is not doing the job. He didn't do it like me. And the love they have for Obama is unparalleled. Well, there's also their love of the DNC. Truly beautiful performance by John Legend. uh, And a very, very emotional evening across the board. Welcome back to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. Jake, I was very moved by the video, the John McCain video, underscoring the friendship that he had with uh, Joe Biden. I was very moved by the personal story of Jill Biden and Joe Biden. Her words were very powerful. We're, of course, going to discuss what Bill Clinton had to say about Joe Biden, uh, what Colin Powell had to say about Joe Biden, what they had to say also about the current president of the United States. But it ended on a very emotional, powerful scene, and I think it's worth, worth discussing. Yeah, those those films were really well done. Uh, the ones about the McCain uh, Biden friendship, and also the one about Jill Biden. Uh, her speech was remarkable too, in the sense that it really was just an affirmative case for her husband. I, I don't think she even mentioned uh, President Trump. Uh, in quite stark contrast to First Lady o- Obama's uh, speech last evening. What I'm really taking away uh, in terms of the message uh, from the Democratic C- National Convention on the second night. Uh, is basically normalcy. That seems to really be a big part of the pitch, that Joe Biden is somebody who who will allow the country a return to normalcy. You heard, uh, first of all, as a Philadelphian, it's great to hear that Willow Grove accent, that somehow <laughs> Jill Biden has not shed at all. It's, it's seriously uh, music to my ears. But but it, but the idea of just like how, how normal the Biden seemed, uh, yeah. that with the military service, uh, she's a teacher. She uh, got her graduate degree when she, a little later in life. Uh, a blended family uh, and and, uh, and and adversity that they had to work through. And then, of course, you know we've heard and talked a lot about um, what the messages are in the sense that Republicans are, are so uh, featured in this Democratic convention. We had that with uh, General Colin Powell uh, and John McCain. That friendship, but that is Dana. That is who Joe Biden is. Mm-hmm. He is somebody who works with Republicans and who likes Republicans, whether or not progressives like it. Absolutely. I really want to drill down on what you said about Jill Biden, uh, the woman who wants to be first lady of the United States. You know, we all know people don't vote for 
first ladies. They vote for the president. But there is something that is sort of you know, important for people to see uh, the full package and to see what the family who would be in their living rooms a lot would be like. And that clearly was what the goal uh, what we saw from Jill Biden explaining who that family is, who she is, uh, in a way uh, that, uh, that, that is very important for people, not just sort of in a generic way, but as somebody who they said over and over uh, helped to bring the family back together. And they were clearly trying to make the case that she could help bring the American family back together. I mean, it was, there was nothing subtle about that. Uh, and, and, making clear that they are very resilient as the Bidens and that they could bring that resiliency to America. Don't you think, Abby? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like the um, the last hour was so emotional, including Addie Barkin. I mean, when we talk about yeah. family, it really yeah. starts with with that for me. I mean, his life story is in so, so many ways tragic, but also a story of a certain kind of perseverance. I mean, all of that, it builds up to what Jill Biden was, was doing toward the end there. And, you know, I, I do think a lot about this idea of what is the balance between the, the sort of progressive flank and on the Republicans that were pictured. And I do think that they kind of struck the right balance, it seemed. They, they had a little bit of a mix of both. They had uh, people advocating for Medicare for All. They had AOC in there giving a really powerful endorsement of, uh, of Bernie Sanders, but also of that movement and the idea of systemic change. But then you also had, I think, in some of these Republican testimonials, it wasn't all, all about working across the aisle. It was also just about decency right. and friendship. And it wasn't so much about politics, but just about normal and going back to maybe a little bit of boring, too. And I think... We stand with Joe Biden. That's voting rights advocate Stacey Abrams speaking earlier this evening, and that brings us to a major moment in history being celebrated today, the ratification 100 years ago today of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, granting women the right to vote. That fight still goes on today with people like Stacey Abrams. Bill Clinton wrapping up his 11th Democratic Convention speech, spoken at every Democratic Convention since 1980. Rahm Emanuel, you and I worked with him in 1992 campaign in many ways this is a vintage clinton speech but on a very small screen and a very small stage <laughs> that's the understatement of the air that i mean it's a very different uh point you're going to hear from colin powell uh, that the validation of someone who has endorsed the democrats before he's endorsed hillary clinton he's endorsed barack obama but he's never appeared at a democratic convention he has voted democratic in the last few elections but this is this takes it another step and he sees this as a, a real issue of leadership. He is a general first, secretary of state and diplomat second. But he really is a military man and also the child of immigrants. And he sees that Donald Trump does not meet the leadership needs of this country. And he is that forcefully uh, compelled to speak out for Joe Biden as a former Republican speaking at the Democratic National Convention. It's the first time he's done this, and it's pretty remarkable. Remember back when the financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009? At some point, it seemed like you stopped seeing George W. Bush on television, and instead the Treasury Secretary was the face of the administration, because that was after Katrina, and Americans had lost confidence in George W. Bush's ability to manage the government. This is, feels an awful lot like one of those moments for Donald Trump. President Trump seems like he just doesn't have a handle on it, and Americans may have just turned him off, and they don't really want to hear from him that much anymore. 
The men who formed this country had no intention of even making their wives a little more than property. Like, they were fine with their own wives being basically property. And they accidentally created a country that can have this convention. I'm proud of this country because of what I'm seeing. Mm. Forget the partisan part of it. Forget being a Democrat, Republican. It doesn't matter. I think anyone who cares about America and who loves this country should feel extremely proud of the vision that we've seen of what America has the potential to be if we let it. And let me just slide back into political strategist role. That's exactly what they needed everyone to see this week. That's right. I've been feeling that unexpectedly this week, that uh, when, you, when somebody's first, yeah. sometimes you see them as a trailblazer, but sometimes you see them as a unicorn. Sometimes mm-hmm. you think like, oh, he's the only one That's on right. earth yeah. who could do this. And yeah. to see Joe Biden himself and to see the Democratic Party nominate a black woman, a woman of color for this position, puts his election in retrospect yeah. more into being a story of America Absolutely. rather than it being the remarkable story of Barack Obama. Right. right. And That's the right. question is whether or not we are the country that is going to elect Kamala Harris vice president and Joe Biden president. Yeah. After the fact of the matter, folks, is that this has been the what we say it's always been. If you go back to the beginning of this show. I went all the way back to the fucking 80s. This is what the media does. Democratic convention is great. The speakers are awesome. Republican convention is dark, divisive, terrible speakers. It is unbelievable how they frame the narrative. And understand, the best viewing they got was when Biden accepted the nomination. And he gave a flat lying speech that basically said... I'm going to serve all Americans when their platform doesn't serve anybody but their base. But he said it and 22 million watched it. 22 million people. That's it. It was 50% below what Trump had last year. It was 38% below what Hillary had. People didn't watch it because they're not voting literally for Biden. They're voting against Trump. People like my daughter who are just caught up in the social media fervor of, oh yeah, literally, fucking he's so horrible. When, if you really break it down, their entire platform, as we'll talk about in an op-ed in a second, is he's ruining democracy. But I want you to really think out there, if you're a person on the bubble, if you're a lefty that listens to the show, what has Trump done? Nothing. He hasn't been able to accomplish anything. You've wrapped him in a scandal on top of another scandal on top of another scandal. He was impeached for what Obama did on open mic. He hasn't accomplished anything. And when he does accomplish it, you pick it apart. The media picks it apart. He should have done this. He should have done that. He should have done this. I mean, the very simple thing that COVID-19 is being put on his feet. He killed America when Nancy Pelosi was crafting a bill to block him from stopping people from coming for China, the week he did it, and then now she's able to walk out and say he should have done it two weeks earlier, is the biggest crock of shit ever. But this is all narrative. Already, Chuck Todd is on the road to 270, and 
You don't need to vote. Biden already won. And as we uh, watch the roll call as it unfolds, we turn to Chuck Chuck Todd, who actually does have a podcast. (laughs) Um, But anyway, Chuck, break it down for us. I know you're at your map. So show us where these battlegrounds are. What is the road to 270 electoral uh, votes for either candidate? By the way, it's the Chuck Todd cast. It's very clever. That's right. That's right. (laughs) More importantly, I have missed this. We don't have this in the Todd household in my home studio. It is nice to have the interactive map back. But here is here is our road to 270. This is the NBC News political unit. This is our competitive battleground map. All the gray states are where both campaigns are spending money actively trying to win. So this is the playing field. These gray states from Nevada in the west in Arizona up to Maine's Congress, 2nd Congressional District, even the Nebraska 2nd Congressional District, those Midwestern states. This is where we believe the race begins, and this is where we have it right now. Uh, And right now, we would have Biden already with a win. We've got these states. He's got a 10-point lead nationally. And right now, we have some of these big battleground states, from Nevada to Arizona to Florida to North Carolina, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, all already, quote, lean Biden, meaning we think Biden has a lead of five points or more. What's interesting here, Savannah, is that the states we haven't assigned, Iowa, Ohio, Georgia, and Texas are, quote, toss-up states right now. He doesn't have to win any of them, and he'd still win the presidency with Barack Obama-like electoral vote numbers. And you're talking about Joe Biden, but just for those who remember this movie from 2016, Chuck, (laughs) when folks like you and all of us put up polls and put up maps that said that Hillary Clinton would win, and now you're showing a similar map, I think a lot of people are probably sitting home a little skeptical. That's okay. I'll give you the Trump path. It exists. It's legit. This is it's the same thing. I mean, there's a way for him to do this. It's very narrow. But when you're trailing in the national popular vote by the numbers he's trailing in order for the president to get to this path, he needs to get a job approval rating north of 46 percent. He's not been north of 45 in our poll for over a year. And he's got he's going to have to get his popular vote number to that 47. You know, and he can he can win that way. But it is. It is very. It, it is a very difficult path as things stand right now. But we're, the, the, part of this model is from a pre-pandemic model. Uh, Biden has to defend those states. How does he do it without traveling on the ground? How does he? How does he pull it off and defend these places without getting some flesh on the ground? Well, look. I think this is. I think right now this is the issue uh, for the Democrats. I think they know that there's some concern that. When it comes to getting out the vote, when you need to get out the vote in places like Georgia, places like Milwaukee, you do need people on the ground. You need people dragging people that come on, you got to vote. I'll come drive you to vote. And I think that is a concern. I think this is why this convention looks the way it looks. This is why this convention has got a lot of you got to get out there and vote because they're going to have to do this virtually, Lester. And you know what? That is harder. And I think there are some nervous field people in Team Biden. Yeah, and you go back to Michelle Obama yesterday. What was her point is trying to get out that vote. I think that, that Democrats clearly see if you can't get, get the on the ground. Get the comfortable shoes. You, yeah. yeah, get the comfortable yeah. shoes to stand in line. Narrative. It's all narrative. This is exactly what they do every election. There has not been an election in my lifetime that a Republican could ever win. And while Chuck Todd's cooking the books, voter suppression, that's what it's for, They talk about the Republicans, voter suppression, requiring IDs, and all this shit, and all the stupid stuff they talk about. It doesn't even touch what the media does every election cycle, narrativing that the Democrat has already won. 
Here's CNN's Amanda Carpenter. I need an honest tally from all of you who watched all four nights of the Dem convention. Tell me the number of times the programming made you cry. That's a reporter. That's a reporter. Tell me there's not a narrative. Joe Biden hasn't been able to put in two fucking sentences together with a dictionary and a thesaurus. He's been MIA for most of the campaign. Technically, he didn't even win his nomination because they stopped voting. Bernie won the last states they voted on, but he was handed a nomination. And this is how they talked about his speech. Jake, uh, this was a moment uh, for Joe Biden, the most important speech of his political career, and he was powerful in doing it. He said President Trump failed at his number one responsibility, which is protecting the American people, and he said that was unforgivable. I've heard Joe Biden give, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of speeches over the years. I have to say this was one of the best, if not the best performance I've ever seen. Also kind of underlining a mistake, a tactical mistake by the Trump campaign to set expectations so low, uh, suggesting that Joe Biden was not capable of giving a speech like this, uh, meant that he would naturally exceed expectations. I'm just uh, reminded of one sentence that uh, Joe Biden said, the choice could not be more clear. The choice between him and the current president of the United States. He never uttered the name Trump, but he kept speaking of the current president, the current occupant, the president, uh, but he never said the word Trump. Anderson, it was truly indeed, and, and I agree with Jake, it may have been the best speech that Joe Biden ever delivered. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a, a number and heard a number of uh, remarkable uh, speeches uh, by uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, obviously former President uh, Obama, Michelle Obama, uh, a number of others, and this uh, kind of a, a, an extraordinary end to to this convention. Well, to me, I agree with you. I, I think this may be the best speech Joe Biden has ever delivered. It wasn't a convention speech written for applause line. It was a presidential address, even a even kind of a fireside chat. And what struck me about uh, Joe Biden, and I think the convention has been building up to that, is the optimism. This was one of the strongest speeches of Joe Biden's career. He spoke directly to the camera. He spoke passionately and from the heart. Playing the pastoral role of the president, really, in this moment. It was a thoroughly normal speech for a country that the Biden campaign thinks wants to get off the circus ride, it's, or the, the carnival ride it's been on. I thought it was a great speech. I think it was better than what many of us expected because he was able to combine both the show that empathy, show that hope, give people that hope. So I think it was important for him tonight to make people feel that hope, to make people feel empathetic, to make people think that you know the future is better, that lightness is, is more important than darkness. And it was those types of phrases that he used that made people feel like maybe this is a time for us to put away all this hatred, put away all this negativity, and, and start looking at, at, at an America, at a United States, uh, that can go into the light and get away from the darkness. But think of it. A man who's waited about 50 years to get nominated by his party to be president gets to do it tonight unexpectedly in his own hometown. Talk about a dream come true.
Oh, an incredible set of remarks. And I think to John's point earlier, more of a presidential style address. He's not someone who is known to give soaring speeches, but tonight's certainly delivered it. That's why the broadcast networks air these um, full speeches by both parties and political candidates because the idea that uh, journalism is what we need to make democracy work and everyone should have the opportunity to hear the views expressed by those running for the most powerful job. A forceful end there from Joe Biden to what is certainly the most intimate acceptance speech in American history. He's smiling now, but it was a stark speech for a very stark time. He called this one of the most difficult moments in American history. He promised America that we would overcome this season of darkness, that he was always trying to draw out the best of Americans, not the worst, drawing what he said was a sharp contrast with President Trump. And politics aside, whether you like him or not, I think he came across as sincere and, and genuine. He said, I will be an ally of the light, not the darkness. I have been watching Joe Biden's speech for many, speeches for many, many years. This was his most important speech, and he met this moment. I might say uh, that this was his finest hour. Jo uh, Joe Biden gave what I believe was the speech of his life. Uh, I thought it was well-crafted, uh, well-delivered, and uh, the, the key message, he said, I will now be a Democratic candidate, but I will be an American president. He took it to Donald Trump, took the fight to Donald Trump, uh, but this was ultimately uh, a message of unity to the country, and I thought, uh, again, the, the best speech I have ever seen Joe Biden give. He is savoring that moment right now. This was the best speech I've ever heard Joe Biden give. He made the promise to stamp out racism. That, that's a bold promise. And he said this, this is our chance to make hope and history wrong. Hope is a powerful thing in America. We are a nation that's hurting. If Joe Biden can keep his word and make this a race about decency, whether he's a more decent man than our current president, I think that's a compelling argument that America... Margaret, do you worry that uh, candidates can now just bypass the news media and that what happens on TV and uh, in newspapers doesn't really matter much? Do I ever worry about that and... and, and does it ever hurt me? Because think about um, the convention we're about to see. It, it could be the Twitter convention in which the first impression people get is from their Twitter feeds, um, skipping us all together because we'll be coming out in, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, it's, we, were, we were there in the golden age of journalism. So much has happened and so much is lost. Um, and I don't think it's just because I'm, I'm in it that I say that. I think someday people will, will come back to the notion that we weren't fake news um, and that buying a newspaper as a, was, as a citizen was a good thing to do and that it mattered. How you used to learn about what was happening in your government really mattered. Some of the most memorable moments for me at conventions have been the great speeches, whether it was, you know, Ted Kennedy's The Dream Shall Never Die at that 1980 convention we've been talking about, or Jesse Jackson taking the early morning bus. Margo, what's most memorable for you in terms of great convention speeches? Well, the first always being the best. In 1988, George Bush gave a speech that was so unlike George Bush because he had to talk about himself and the great I, which his mother told him never to say. And he had one line in there, and he said, I am a quiet man, and the, the quiet people hear me. 
And I thought, that is not just him, but it was his presidency in which he almost always did what he thought was right, whether or not we thought it. Uh, and I was just impressed by that. Dan? The one that stands out the most was Barack Obama, who had just been elected a senator from Illinois, uh, made a tremendous speech at the 2004 convention. And uh, I interviewed him immediately after that speech, and it, he, as most politicians, he drilled you in the eyes. You, you had strong eye contact. But given the speech and the way he handled himself in the, in the wake of that speech, I did find myself saying, uh, there's a great future ahead for him. Uh, I can't say I thought he'd become president of the United States as quickly as he did. But uh, for a speech that was not a candidate on the ticket, it was the most memorable talk. The tremendous speech, and every young aspiring politician, whatever their party, could do worse than to take that Obama speech, uh, which vaulted him into the national consciousness as a model for how to make a really convincing speech on television. At times, it was much more like a fireside chat. A fireside chat and then took on the tone at the end of the fervency of almost a preacher at the pulpit. It was a deeply optimistic speech, hopeful. It was intimate, and um, it was very suited to a virtual convention. It really seemed like he was trying to buck up a, a nation that has been through a lot. I have to say, having watched Joe Biden since the 70s when he first ran for the Senate, I have never seen him deliver a better speech. When he talks, as you say, so optimistically, saying, are we the generation that can wipe the stain of racism from our national character? I think we can. It was all hopeful, upbeat, optimistic. It sounded like a presidential address, uh, rather than an address to a Democratic convention. It was not partisan at all. In fact, he was talking about bridging the divide, and I thought uh, this was really a powerful moment for him. It was a much broader, more uh, aspirational, and more uh, obviously an effort to be more uplifting. And he put it in stark terms. It was optimistic, but he also said this is a time of peril in our country, but it is also a time of possibility. The Democrats have laid down a marker, and, and Joe Biden cl uh, uh, closed it very well. Um, this is a unified Democratic Party. This was a really well-run convention. They stretched their tent out really well without ripping any holes in the middle. I think this is a highly successful convention, and it lays down a marker for Donald Trump next week. I it wouldn't matter if he was inarticulate. It's the narrative. We do this for every fucking convention we've ever had. It's a slugger's row of speakers, Chris Matthews says. He was dogged by the right, but what's the difference? They say it every time. So as we go to our first music break, which we don't really... Well, we're going to play a couple Go-Go songs. What the fuck? We'll play a Go-Go song really quick because I watched the documentary. I used to love these chicks. We'll play freaking uh, a Go-Go song. And you'll come back in to Anna Navarro and Rachel Maddow. Maddow is so emotional about watching this, one of the speakers. And Navarro says the most racist fucking thing I've ever heard said on a TV network. And not a single person on CNN even batted an eye. So that, to me, was a surprise. President Obama's speech tonight slayed me. Um, I'm sure people have different opinions about it because it's a different kind of thing from him. But his warnings that we could potentially be at the end of American democracy um, scared me. And I found upsetting and hard to watch. Um, but it's powerful. Powerful stuff. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I'd just like to co-sign everything that, uh, that Rachel Maddow just said, because I, I agree. Everyone's for that. And yet virtually every word at the convention, other than Biden's speech, was aimed directly at the left's base, the coalition of the miserable that is the engine of the Democratic Party. Needless to say, the base loved it. Here's the single dumbest talking head on the single dumbest cable news channel clapping her hands in infantile glee because Democrats managed to exclude an entire racial group from this week's proceedings. And she's grateful for that. She just couldn't bear to look at them anymore. It was all about representation. My little melanated, cynical heart. My immigrant, melanated woman heart felt so full last night. Actually, today is today with David and John is the first time I see a white man like in eight hours. This, you know, other than than Joe Biden last night, and that's okay. They've had 240 years of representation. They're going to be okay. What kind of person would say something like that, or even think it? If you ever catch yourself feeling thrilled that you don't have to see certain racial groups, if you find people who look different from you that horrifying, that repulsive, then you can be certain that you are indeed a racist, a nasty one too. And that's exactly the sort of person the Democratic National Convention was aimed at.
the Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. You say the NRA's mission emphasizes the difference it makes in the lives of the people it serves by ensuring that their rights are not only respected, but also enforced. Well, I got to give it to you, NRA. You certainly do make a difference in people's lives. The lives of people in Las Vegas, in Orlando, at Virginia Tech, Sutherland Springs, El Paso, Parkland, Santa Fe, Dayton, Virginia Beach, Thousand Oaks, Aurora, at the Tree of Life Synagogue, at Sandy Hook Elementary. The NRA didn't pull the trigger, of course, but whenever families of victims have asked for common sense gun control laws to prevent the list I've read from growing, the NRA gives no quarter. Attorney General James names four defendants, but what she didn't name or perhaps couldn't name are the victims of gun violence who have begged you, NRA, for your help your advocacy, your power, and your enormous influence to control, if not end, gun violence in this country. A charity is supposed to help people in need. These people and countless others were in need. A nonprofit isn't intended to profit at all, let alone profit from misery. But if these allegations are true, the money your charitable organization was supposed to raise to help people in need actually padded already full pockets for needless spending. They used millions upon millions of dollars from the NRA for personal use, including for lavish trips for themselves and their families, private jets, expensive meals, and other private travel lavish vacations while coffins were lowered into the ground. But in practice, NRA, your mission really is quite specific, ensuring that the Second Amendment rights are protected. Well, what about Philando Castile? You remember him, NRA, right? He's the man in the car who told a Minnesota police officer that he was a lawfully carrying gun owner before he was gunned down in front of a child. NRA, I, I don't recall you saying anything at all to advocate for him or ensure his rights were, what did, what did you say your mission state? Uh, yes, ensure that his rights not only be respected, but enforced. You called his death a terrible tragedy, but not until a year later. And only after the officer who shot and killed Mr. Castile was found not guilty of manslaughter. It was difficult to reconcile your mission statement with reality before these allegations. Today, these allegations, if proven, might make that impossible. Might make that impossible. Well, I guess now I'm the one being charitable. This whole thing was coordinated from top to bottom with the media. They're part of it. Glenn Kessler, fact-checking the second eye of 2020 Democratic National Convention, 
Gerald Byer, this is quite the framing. Second on the DNC was more emotional than fact-laden. Not fact-laden. is one of the more creative euphemisms I have run across lately. And he didn't fact-check anything. There was no fact-checking. Nothing. New York Times wonders if Obama can forgive America for voting for Trump. Washington Post journalists suggest overturning the 22nd Amendment so we can elect Obama again. And we, this is such an important time in America as we remember the 19th Amendment. But talking to Republicans and Democrats in recent minutes, it's clear that they're, they're not only talking about the 19th Amendment these days or tonight, they're talking about the 22nd Amendment that bans a president from going beyond two terms. Democrats are looking at that Obama speech tonight and saying maybe one day he could come back, maybe that 22nd Amendment could be repealed, because that was a rebuke, a historic rebuke of a current president by a former president. And that speaks to the fundamental core of this country, its values. And this was, it was a partisan speech on one level, but it was beyond that from President Obama, a speech that many people, uh, while Senator Harris's speech was historic in and of itself and had its own power, that speech by a former president in a constitutional setting, Republicans are sitting up straight tonight and paying attention. How do you have... Freedom of press when people say stuff like that. The 22nd. Jennifer Rubin. It makes you cry just to remember how honorable president sounds. Obama's mere presence reminds us of what a dignified, reasonable president sounds like. As an ex-president, he was there to defend democracy itself. It's their big line. Then people brought up what she used to say. Obama's killing the Democratic Party. Obama is the answer, but the media invents false equivalents. And are there no Democrat grown-ups? Because she used to be conservative. Jeff Jarvis. No, how dare you? Were these pieces of silver worth the price of your soul? Because he goes to Washington Post and there's ads for Trump and they don't want ads for Trump. Then, of course, they had radical people on. Linda Sassauer. Oshwin Sizbig, seeing a bunch of conservative blue checks going out to the anti-Semite of the DNC, and I agree, I'll never forget when Linda Sauer led the charge in whipping up a bogus racist hysteria over the border that led directly to gigantic anti-Semitic mass murder. And people attacked her because they're defending her. She's literally attacked Jewish people as the enemy for their being of certain lineages. This isn't a quibble over annexation policy. AG conservative. In a normal world, someone would be able to say it's messed up that a bigot like Laura Luber won her primary and that the DNC is giving a platform to a bigot like Sassar. It's pretty revealing when someone only cares about the former. And of course, through the whole thing, media... Not once talks about any other platforms, what they want to do. None of it's covered. They completely fucking ignore it. It's like it just didn't happen. Biden will dismantle the Second Amendment and Beto will help all while defunding the police. Those are facts. That's from his website. Nobody's covering it. Nobody. 
Biden immigration plan grants citizenship to 11 million illegal immigrants, says immigrant enforcement infected by systemic racism. That means he wants to defund ICE and bring it down. We have measles. We have fucking the plague in our country from illegal immigrants reintroducing fucking diseases we haven't had for years because we don't have a fucking immigration plan that people will follow. The left has decided not to follow federal law, I-9, any of that stuff. But he's going to do that. So no borders, no ICE, make everybody legal. And I think what Chuck Todd at all are forgetting, 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share. 50% of strong liberals support firing Trump donors. 36% of strong conservatives support firing Biden donors. 32% are worried about missing out on a job opportunity because of their political opinions. People aren't telling you the truth in your polls, Chuck Todd. Voter embarrassment about Trump support may have messed up poll predictions. What's behind the bad predictions? It's what I say all the time. People aren't telling you the truth because right now in the street, you get beat for a fucking red hat. At the DNC convention today, or not today, this this DNC convention, a seven-year-old kid was beaten. Can you get off my property? Get off my property? Are you just from my property? Yes, we are. You know that's a felony? That one too. We don't get that one. Get away from the the out. Get it, Liam. Get it. Touch my hat. Take your hat. That's somebody else's hat. Take that hat. Get your hat back, baby. Look at what you just did to my phone. Get your hat back, baby. Get your hat back, baby. Give me back my hat. 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 I'm telling you right now. You're gonna just you're gonna steal my property? I'll follow you to your car and get your license plate. I'm walking. You want me to call 911? You want me to call 911? Taylor! Taylor, these people right here are taking your hat. They attacked my son. I have it on video. 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 Yeah, you want to try me? You want to try me? You want to try me? I got the whole thing on video. I got the whole thing on video. Don't touch. Oh, you gonna punch him? You gonna punch him? Oh yeah, you gonna punch? Oh, you wanna second punch me? You wanna second punch me? Take my hat. Take my hat, baby. You want to fucking hat. punch me? Nobody punch me. Yeah, I saw you to punch me. I saw you trying to punch me. I wish you would. We will beat the shit out of you. Take your hat. Go ahead. I wish you would. We will knock you the fuck out. We will knock you. That's why when you went to hit me, you did it, right? That's why when you went to hit me. I'm not trying to hit you. I'm not trying to fight you. You're coming after me. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you. She came out to my son. I have it on video. She came out to my son. 
So last podcast, we showed that in 2016, they booed God. This time, they removed him completely. There is no God. They do preaching, but as you heard on the Tucker, it is more America sucks, Reverend Wright, we're all going to hell. Now they removed under God from everything. That was the gay or LGBTQ conferences. During the Muslim Delegate Assembly, the video of live stream event showed A.J. Durante led the pledge but left out the important part saying, under God. Throughout everything they did it. Benny, I guess the under God part just isn't important to Democrats. And we're not talking white people, God. Muslims didn't say it. Muslims ignored it. But they brought on the freaks. And you heard it briefly in Tucker. Here is just one of the sessions. Okay, it says we're live now. Hello, everybody. I'm Marissa Richmond. I'm here with Shannon Cuddle. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, uh, we're, uh, we're here. Uh, we've got a slide presentation coming. Uh, and we're just waiting for that to get loaded. Ah, okay, here we go. We're here today to present the Jane Fee Award. Um, Jane Fee was the first openly transgender delegate uh, from the state of Minnesota back in 2000. Uh, Jane is a veteran of World War II, uh, was instrumental uh, in helping pass the transgender um, non-discrimination ordinance in her home city of Minneapolis, uh, one of the first cities in the country to have a fully inclusive non-discrimination ordinance. Uh, and then in 1993, helped steer through the very first transgender inclusive uh, non-discrimination law at the state level uh, in her home state of Minnesota. And so uh, the transgender delegates of 2004 uh, formed uh, the Jane Fee Award. Uh, to honor somebody within the Democratic Party at each Democratic National Convention uh, who was instrumental in fighting for transgender uh, inclusion and transgender equality. And they named this award in honor of Jane, who, by the way, is still alive, uh, but is in poor health and is not able to be with us today. So if uh, we could then get the, the second slide. This, normally, when we are together uh, at the convention, we call up all of the transgender delegates on stage to, to show who we are and that we're part of the convention. Obviously, we're not able to do that since we're not all in Milwaukee. However, uh, we do want to introduce uh, the members of the transgender delegation, transgender and gender nonconforming delegation of 2020. So uh, we put together this collage of, of smiling headshots. And so um, I'd just like to quickly introduce everybody. Uh, on the top row, starting on the left, we have Justin Neiman from North Carolina, Wendy Ella May of North Carolina, Alec Momeni Dupree of New Hampshire, Gene Smith of Indiana, Emily Ann Ward of California, Nathan Broomer of Florida, Mara Gluka of Minnesota, Brenda Churchill of Vermont, uh, Council Member Rosemary Ketchum of West Virginia, one of our elected officials, and Michelle Reicher of Oregon. 
In the middle row, again, starting on the left, we have Dejalyn Alvarez of Pennsylvania, Chanel Haley of Georgia, Council Member Veronica Pedro of Indiana, and Veronica is the one who put together this collage for us, Megan Stabler of Texas, a member of the Platform Committee this year, Shannon Cuddle, Jay Moyer of Kansas, uh, Marissa Richmond in Tennessee, that's me, Alfred Twu of California, who holds the distinction of becoming our very first AAPI delegate in the Trans uh, Caucus, and then Melissa Sean Mallory, of, also of California. Then on the bottom row, we have Jason Boxer of California, Council Member Lisa Middleton of California, Brianna Westbrook of Arizona, Charlotte Clymer of the District of Columbia, David Sensiman of Minnesota, Leslie Phillips of Massachusetts, Narissa Jimenez Petchumras of North Carolina, uh, Monica Nemeth, who is a member of the District of Columbia Advisory Neighborhood Commission, Jose Caballero of California, and then our longest serving member, Melissa Scalars of New York, who was here in her fifth consecutive convention. Um, also not pictured is Nick Harris of Florida, Mason Armstrong of Idaho, Colin Platt of North Carolina, and we want to give a shout out to last night's speaker, uh, Delegate Donica Rome of Virginia. Uh, next slide, please. The first Jane Fee Award was given in 2004 by the transgender delegates that year, and that recipient was Scott Safier of Pennsylvania. Uh, I searched hard for a picture from 2008. We couldn't find one, but that winner um, uh, was uh, Rick Stafford from Jane's home state of Minnesota. In 2008, uh, excuse me, 2012, uh, the recipient was Brian Bond of Missouri, and then in 2016, we gave two Jane Fee Awards, the first to Congressman Mike Honda of California, and the second one to Chairman Ray Buckley of New Hampshire. And at this point, um, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Shannon Cuddle, uh, as you heard earlier, is a member of the South Orange Maplewood School Board in New Jersey and holds the distinction this year of becoming the very first elected official to become a transgender delegate. And uh, this year is one of our six uh, elected officials serving as a transgender delegate. So, Shannon, take it away. Uh, thank you, Dr. Richmond. Um, and thank you to uh, the chairman and our esteemed colleagues and elected officials for joining us here today on this momentous occasion um, for our caucus meeting. Um, I would like to go to the next slide, please. It is my esteemed and incredible honor to introduce the Jane Fee Award 2020 recipient, New Jersey's very own Barbara Babs Casper Superstein. Babs Superstein was a dedicated advocate and longtime advocate for the transgender community and the greater LGBTQ plus community across the country and across the state of New Jersey. Next slide, please. Bab Sipperstein was New Jersey's first transgender delegate to the Democratic National Convention. Babs became the first openly transgender member of the Democratic National Committee in 2009 
and served on the executive committee of the Democratic National Committee from 2011 through 2017. Babs also served as deputy vice chair of the New Jersey Democratic State Committee, vice president of the bipartisan Women's Political Caucus of New Jersey, the political director of Gender Rights Advocacy Association of New Jersey, president of the New Jersey Stonewall Democrats, co-chair of the National Stonewall Democrats Federal PAC Board, vice chair of Garden State Equality, and as a member of the New Jersey Civil Union Review Commission. Babs was also a small business owner and a veteran. Next slide, please. Babs is also the namesake of the groundbreaking historic New Jersey Babs-Dipperstein law that Governor Murphy signed into law in 2019 that allows transgender persons the option to self-identify their gender on their birth certificate as she worked tirelessly as a passionate champion for gender equity, LGBTQ plus persons, and civil, transgender civil rights, and ensuring that the transgender community had a seat at the table in her work and advocacy helping move forward transgender rights on the national, state, and local levels. Babs was instrumental working with other leaders to help forge the DNC Transgender Caucus and LGBT Caucus. And Babs was a force that was able to galvanize both sides of the aisle, always working to ensure transgender and LGBTQ plus rights. During her life, she touched so many lives in so many ways. On a personal note, Babs was a dear friend, mentor, and colleague to me as we championed the Anti-Billing Bill of Rights, supporting inclusive, safer schools, inclusive education curriculum, the New Jersey ban on reparative therapy, ending Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and supporting marriage equality. When I was thinking of running for office, Babs was the first person who encouraged me to do it. And on election night, she was the first person to call me to say, we did it. We stand on the shoulders of those that come before us, and I'm here with you today as an honor to serve as a New Jersey Biden delegate and one of New Jersey's first transgender elected official because of the work and the many strides that Babs has made on the local, state, and national level and in our history. I know that I stand on Babs's shoulders, helping to build the next rung in the ladder to help lift up the next generation of transgender and LGBTQ plus leaders and advocates. Her legacy continues as the next generation of New Jersey transgender youth leaders are already blazing trails and creating change inspired by Babs' actions and advocacy, such as Rebecca Bresenhoff and New Jersey's own Chris Rios. Her legacy lives on in our youth and our next generation. Now I would like to share a few words from Babs' family on this honor. On behalf of the entire Superstein family, I would like to thank the DNC for this amazing tribute. Babs would be truly touched and honored to see all of you here fighting the good fight. It makes our entire family so proud to see how Babs inspired so many and made such a lasting impact on the country's LGBTQ community. Thank you. On behalf of Babs' family, Babs' daughter, Jana Superstein. Thank you, Shannon. 
at this point, um, I'm going to, we're going to have a, a, a panel to continue the theme of uh, fighting for trans rights. We're going to have a panel uh, looking at trans youth issues. Um, uh, we've, we've been watching state legislatures, especially here in the South, uh, targeting uh, trans youth uh, for uh, trying to deny them access to health care, uh, education, and, and even access to the right to play sports, although needless to say, um, the mishandling of the coronavirus by the current administration is affecting a lot of people's ability to play sports, but they've been particularly transphobic in schools. And so um, I'd like to introduce the moderator of the panel, who will then introduce the panelists. Our moderator is a good old friend, Diego Sanchez. Diego was a senior policy advisor to Congressman uh, Barney Frank until his ret- uh, Congressman Frank's retirement in 2013. And in the process, Diego made history becoming the first openly transgender person to work as a senior legislative staff member uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, he testified before Congress in the historic transgender discrimination hearing in 2008. And that year was appointed as the first openly transgender person to serve on the DNC platform committee. Uh, he has served our community in many roles and has won many awards and honors for his excellent work. Uh, more recently, of course, he's been working as the policy director for PFLAG, one of the most important organizations for our community. So at this point in time, it is my great honor, my great pleasure to introduce my dear old friend, Diego Sanchez. Uh, and Diego, please introduce us to your panelists, and uh, we, we all look forward to hearing uh, what you all have to say. Support LGBTQ plus organizations that actually center, like, Black, trans, and POC people, um, because the big mainstream ones, like, don't, to be honest. And then also, like, people are still protesting out here in these streets. People have been continuously protesting every single day, and I can guarantee you- That is a guy wearing a wig. He ran that one. And then in the Tucker, you heard this me, uh, L me or J my, that's it. He is a mermaid king, queen king who calls for the abolition of ice, police, and prisons. And then there was an African American person there who was even more militant. This is long, but this is the Democratic Party. Now please listen to a poem. By Linda Labesha. This poem is titled uh, I Have Crossed the Atlantic. This piece was written in response to the Carol Walker exhibit at the Tate Modern in London. I was invited there December 2019 uh, to present this work and to host an event uh, in response to this very large exhibit. Uh, this large sculpture of Fonz Americanus by Carol Walker um, in tribute uh, to the Atlantic slave trade. Am I more beautiful now that you have seen me dance, seen me prance and lay and give you drama and dismay, host, accommodate, entertain, give you my time and energy for a fee? Did I do something you liked? Do you like something I said? Did I give you something you need? Do you think you understand me better? Do you feel sorry for me? Do you feel pity? I wonder often what if I stop moving, stop living, stop breathing? Would I stop grooving, stop existing, stop feeding? Would I be remembered still, slain, still, 
forgotten still, left to rot in some remote place like garbage. How sad. I have crossed the Atlantic to walk in the shoes my ancestors never had, to feel their footsteps in the clothes they didn't possess. I have crossed the Atlantic to wear layers, to warm the spirits left cold, shipwrecked, diseased, battered, and bloody, to reclaim the money they were sold for, to retrace the steps of my ancestors' wildest dreams, to reverse time, to cross waters backwards to a land I've never seen. I've crossed the Atlantic to further discover me, to dig deeper into what has always called me there. Elton John, The Lion King, can you feel the love tonight? My Antiguan mother's love for the Beatles, Harry Potter, Amy Winehouse's whole career, God and the Spice Girls. I collected those stickers in second grade. Secret Diary of a Call Girl, that Showtime special, taught me everything I needed to know about being a sex worker there in the UK. But those were white ideals passed down to me by television and media. So tonight, today, I'm here for Carol Walker, for art and to walk in the protection of my ancestors, the protection they never had, to be glad for the privilege to experience this other half of the world, even if I feel alone. I'm the daughter of waters my mother gave birth to. Before she prayed the predicted daughter inside her away with that santero, I was the daughter of Yamaya. I am the before the before. I will be the after. I've spent my whole life doing for others, working for others, feeding others, watering others, that now I must water me. They call them monuments because they are monumental. And this moment in, in my life, in our lives, feels so monumental. It gives me hope for what the future can be. Maybe I will live to see a monument of a woman like me. The way I saw Stonewall 50, hopefully that statue is Marsha P. I have crossed the Atlantic to let past generations speak. Those spirits that have woven have opened and chosen me to usher in as an agent of change. To be perceived a monster, a demon, a fallen angel off the page. Here is where I hope for a career sweet and soft as Corinne Bailey Ray. As deep and vast and vulnerable as a fabulous Sade. May this moment in history manifest more monuments like these to replace the old ones that no one really cares to see anymore. May their emergence and long overdue establishment and existence remind everyone of our terrible, ugly, and hurtful black world history. For every piece that's fragmented, trauma-induced into a mystery, left to the imagination, interpretation, undocumented secretly, may we archive another black hymnary. My delivery will not be kind. I have crossed the Atlantic and have yet to find peace. I speak for the ancestors that never could speak. I speak for the ancestors that, that could only scream or weep. I weep for the ancestors that have just cried themselves silently to sleep. Bodies on bodies. Murder on murder, genocide on genocide. My black trans life is a miracle to breathe. My black trans life is a wonder to see. So no, I will not shuck and jive. I will not entertain. I will release. I will unleash without refrain. So that even if you forget my words, you damn sure won't forget my name. You will remember me. I will run my black-ass mouth until the day stillness has come to visit, and maybe next I'll cross the Pacific. For I have crossed the Atlantic alone without a boyfriend or a spouse to find a glimmer of a lighthouse, a spark of hope.
I journey alone to find a new home away from toxicity and family, corruption and government, fast paces and no aces, just too many troubled jacks. The artist in me says, I'm a New Yorker, but I've never felt American. I don't know the Pledge of Allegiance. Those are not my systems the way that is not my president. Call me New Yorkian. My mother's Antiguan, but first and foremost, I am black. I'm a black transgender woman. I manipulate sands of masculinity with waves of the future feminist movement. My presence requires a level of care and understanding that most don't know. Hell, I cross oceans alone. I've crossed the Atlantic in fear. No family here. No one I know. No friends. No enemies. I think, will I be targeted here? What are my chances? Will someone help me? Will someone help me? Are you my friend? Can I find a home in you? Do you feel sorry for me? Do you feel sorry for me? Do you pity me? Am I human too? Where can I rest? Where can I rest? Where can I rest in peace? Where is it safe? Where do I belong? I've crossed the Atlantic to feel spirits lost. I've crossed the Atlantic to respond to this call. I have crossed the Atlantic to stand for the many who never had a chance to even crawl, to turn time forward, across water backward, to progress, create, and remember history with you all. I hope and wish and pray that I soon find somewhere I belong. Thank you. So magnificent. Thank you so much, Linda. And now the panel. So powerful. I just I had to share. I had to make sure you all got to experience that with us. Linda, I wanted to ask you a little about how did you find and grow up in the house of Labasia, and what are you seeing today in black and multi multiracial, multicultural trans youth that you care for and bring up now that you find the same or different than when you were first introduced to the house of Labasia? Um, I so I when I. You know, when I say that I was brought up in the House of Asia, uh, what I mean is uh, that is that's where my transition began. Um, and it was around that time that I really felt like I was coming into myself um, as a young artist, um, as 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 just a young person trying to figure out, you know, what what's going on in the world. I think that the challenges that young people are dealing with today are so much more different because we're in a pandemic and um yeah, I think a, a lot of young people are not even sure what direction to go in. They're not even sure, you know, what's still possible. Um, and I think it's it's more than than afraid hope. I think it's a, 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 a an adjustment. I think it's a, a a sharp sharp a lot of sharp changes. You know, to the way that people are used to doing things, the way young people are used to receiving services or receiving help. That's yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. Jay, Jay Mai, talk to us a little about how you decided to pursue divinity school and what are you discovering in your faith pursuits that you might have missed had you chosen another path for fulfillment and growth? So going to divinity school for me was honestly just a survival mechanism. Um, I seek stability as a black trans via person um, in this world. And so like divinity school was like the next stable step for me. Um, and I'm fucking exhausted of having to survive and having to choose my commitment to survival over my commitment to my own flourishing. Um, something that I would have missed if I chose a different path. Um, 
is that some of the holiest people and the people who most resemble what God looks like to me are black trans folks and in particular black trans women. And I wouldn't have figured that out if it wasn't for Div School. Um, and I mean, I would have figured it out, but it just helps to know that God looks like black trans women to me. Um, and honestly, like, we know that the most vulnerable and unprotected people in America are black trans women. And honestly, this party isn't doing enough to protect them. It's not doing enough to like really be upfront in the ways in which it has failed black trans women. And so if you aren't doing anything to tangibly support black trans, trans women right now, you need to get your shit together and do the fucking work or move the fuck out of the way, out of the way so that people who are doing the work can give our roses to our sisters while they're still here. Thank you so much. Next next point is for Linda and Jay, for both of you, Linda LaBeja and Jay Mai. What kinds of questions do our black, brown, API, native, or multi-race, trans, and non-binary youth ask you that remind you of what you asked when you were their age? And what are they asking you that you never thought of? Um. I think that the questions that I've heard Black, trans, and non-binary youth ask me is just, and things I'm just, like, starting to, like, just realize for myself is why I can't dream bigger for myself. Why can't, why can't folks imagine a world without the cops? Why can't folks imagine a world uh, without prisons? Why can't people expand their c- imaginations to include community care, to include an abolitionist future? Um, and I'm talking about like for real, for real abolition, not just watered down DNC version of abolition. Um, we're talking about abolishing the police. We're talking about abolishing ICE. We're talking about abolishing prisons. And we need folks to dream bigger because your fear of losing power and your privilege is holding all of us back from freedom. And your desire to be a savior and to tow party lines is literally killing black trans women. So quit the shit out. It's not cute. That is what young non-binary black non-binary and trans youth are asking me and that's a question that I'm asking for myself right now. Thank you so much for that informative and courageous response. Linda, would you like to take that question as well? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, questions that really stick out for me in my experience working with young people um, here in New York City uh, where we experience the highest volume of uh, youth homelessness and that, mm-hmm. that population is uh, almost half uh, all LGBT identified, um, just, just for folks to be aware, uh, is, is, is what am I supposed to do? You know, uh, I think uh, our youth uh, and I think our people, LGBT people, are consistently discriminated against or consistently uh, judged or consistently ridiculed um, and made to feel shamed um, and are pushed, pushed out of opportunities, whether it be scholarships, whether it be employment, whether it be housing. And at this point, I think we've reached a, a moment where there is so much more visibility, right? And, 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 and this is great, right? This is, this is, this is awesome that we can, we can see this kind of diversity in media. However, 
I think that there's a, a conversation being not being had to bridge between communities, right, to to essentially stop the violence that is happening. Um, and I, I think it's all just a lack, it's a lack of resources. You know, when we're talking about defunding the police, we're talking about pouring back into the community, we're talking about community centers, we're talking about the importance of, 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 of inter, intergenerational communities, you know. You're talking about the LGBT community. I know coming from the House of LaBeja, you know, it was very difficult for us, you know, coming in. I came in in, in, in 2011, and our, our leaders were coming uh, coming out of very rough times, having lost many people to the AIDS epidemic, you know, having lost uh, uh, many people uh, to incarceration, having lost people to, to violence, to, 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 it, you know, the, 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 to mental health, you know, like these are real, these are real issues that have affected, affected communities of color for generations, for generations. I visited Seneca Village recently and, 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 and was even more shocked by that history. It just, you know, it goes on, it goes on. Thank you so much. So, uh, Linda, you just mentioned that 50% of, of the youth that, that you're stumbling on, that, that it's about 50% LGBTQ. We know the national number is definitely undercounted as 40% are LGBTQ of homeless youth. And we know that many of those are trans or gender non-binary. Under the current administration, shelters are permitted and practically invited to turn away trans people. And there remains barriers for adoption and foster care that the Equality Act and Every Child Deserves a Family, which is John Lewis's bill, would address. If you could talk right now with Vice President Biden and Senator Harris, what would you ask of them to best support trans and non-binary youth of color? Jay, would you like to take that first? Uh, Linda, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, so I would, if I could talk to VP Biden and Senator Harris right now, I would tell them to open their purse, to open the DNC's purse, um, and to give hard cash money or cash app, Venmo, whatever, Black, trans, non-binary youth right now, because we cannot vote if we're struggling to survive. We cannot focus on any of these issues if we're struggling to feed ourselves, if we're struggling to house ourselves, if we're trying to figure out how we're going to live the next day, if there's going to be breath in our lungs the next day. Um, open your purse because I'm tired of seeing people like trans, non-binary youth having to use GoFundMes and cash apps and Venmos to sustain themselves. That is freaking ridiculous. And so they need to... Open up the purse, open up your bag and give money where money is much needed because we can't do shit if we can't live. Very well said. Uh, let's, let's look at the next question, if we would. How can we raise, how can we support, how can we cultivate the fierce, the resilient, and the fighting trans and GNC non-binary youth in our own communities. I think, Jay, you just talked about making sure that cash is opened up. What I know that young people come to you, and what do you do in a way to lift up, to celebrate the resilience, or you know, what do you tell them to do? Um. I 
that I think, and I think that's the issue is that, is that what do you tell these young people to do, you know, when, when they're being uh, followed uh, into uh, whatever few service, you know, providers they can actually seek by men that want to uh, use them for sexual favors, you know, uh, like, like, what do you, what do you tell, uh, what do you tell uh, uh, TGNC people that are experiencing uh, discrimination at, at work? you know, and not being able to advance or losing their job. Like, what do you tell people to do when there are no more housing options for, mm-hmm. uh, for, for homeless youth, you know? Um, I think, you know, I think I would say that there needs to be, like, there needs to be support provided to communities of color. Um, I think that it needs to be recognized how important the, the, the innovation and and the usefulness of diversity can really uh, enrich a lot of our systems, right? When we're actually working collectively um, toward a common goal, because I think you know many people have a common goal. I just think that you know there's a lot of etiquette and expectation around how we all need to go about doing it, and I think it's just time to throw it away and just allow what we're seeing now is a, is is is, a, is an allowance of of, of accessibility. You know, in the presence of this virus, the uh, the, the, the 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 openness to consider, <laughs> you know, other other people, you know, uh, in in our space and with each other, you, you know, and I think there's there's a power to that that we have to hone in on. I don't know if I answered the question. Oh, you did, you did. I mean, it's, I think you you answered it even with the first line, which is that is the question. What do we say? Jay, we've got about uh, 30 seconds. Is there anything you'd like to do to close? Um, I would just say um, support LGBTQ plus organizations that actually center, like, black, trans, and POC people. Um, because the big mainstream ones, like, don't, to be honest. And then also, like, people are still protesting out here in these streets. People have been continuously protesting every single day. And I can guarantee you that they're led by black trans youth. So listen to them. Let them lead. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jay Mai, Linda LaBeja. Thank you so much. This is their platform. These are their people. They didn't show any of this in the daytime. They buried them in Zoom meetings. Beyond beauty, beauty beyond binaries, the mermaid trend has an extra special meaning for many trans women. And they talk about how they want to be aerial. There's all these pictures of men dressed as mermaids with wigs and shit. And then you go, feminist current. Somebody finally tackles it. When lobby groups like mermaids dictate policy and disclose and discourse around gender identity, kids lose. And it was started mermaids, family and individual support for teenagers and children with gender identity issues. And that was at the DNC convention before I read this article. This is a high schooler. Now, if the Republicans had a high schooler on the steps of the fucking monument getting attacked by an Indian, what would, oh, we know what happened. Sandman got treated like dog shit. 
Yeah, he was 17. This kid's 17. Now, if the Republicans brought that person on to speak, oh, wait a minute, they are. And the media is disparaging it. But they didn't even talk about 17-year-old who did the pledge and did a whole speaking session. I want to take this opportunity to introduce you to Sam Dotson, who is the vice chair of the High School Democrats of, of America. They will lead us in our Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you so much for the introduction, Earl. With whatever gay pride, trans pride, or identity flag you may have at home, in, sorry, keep those in mind, um, please place your hand over your heart. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. And we have another young man named Sam Dotson who did the Pledge of Allegiance. He's a high school senior in South Carolina. And even though he's a high school senior, he has a quite an impressive um, record for advocacy on behalf of LGBT issues, on behalf of school reform issues. And the, recently, the Democratic National Party um, made the high school Democrats an official part of the party, and we have a and they have a seat on the party um, in the party. And Sam Dotson will be one of those representatives. And he will be the youngest member of the LGBT caucus. And I want to say in advance, before we have our meeting in January, welcome to the DNC and welcome and thank you for your work and advocacy on behalf of young people around the United States. We can't win unless we have the young, the youth vote. And we need people, more people like Sam to lead those efforts in that community for us. Sam, thank you. Thank you so much, Earl, for that warm welcome and introduction. First of all, I also want to thank the DNC for giving us this seat on the, you know, on the party and giving us this opportunity to represent the youth who a lot of times in many communities have no one to look to in the party and no one to look to in their communities. Before I get started, I want to take a moment to recognize all of those who have come before me and paved the way for the LGBTQ community and Gen Z um, in this country. I would not be here today at all if it were not for the members of the, um, of the LGBTQ activists who have fought their way through the courts activists like Marsha P. Johnson, the Stonewall activists, and all of those who have paved the way for us to be here. In addition to that, I want to take a moment to remember and recognize all of the transgender, black, indigenous women of color who have lost their lives and faced violence and murder within this country. As someone who has grown up queer in a conservative community in South Carolina and, at, and during an anti-LGBTQ presidency, politics has become a necessity. <coughs> um, excuse me. Uh, here in Greenville, my county council recently was confronted about an anti-LGBTQ policy, and the council responded, "Let's have a debate about it." But as a member of the LGBTQ, as a member of the LGBTQ community, our lives and our identities are not up for debate. Um, although people's beliefs change every single day, we will be members of this community from the day we are born to the last day of our lives, and that is not up for debate. If we elect Trump, we are committing to a national culture of hate and a culture of debating human lives and anti-human beliefs, and that is something we have to put a stop to right now. <clears throat> As a high school Democrat in America, we are rewriting the social constructs and rewriting the stereotypes and expectations that have long lived with us in this community and country. You know, the work we're doing this fall is more than just electoral. It's not just a seat. We are electing someone who is going to, you know, 
immortalize people who will fight for us in the court system and and stop the stereotypes and harmful hatred that we see on the news, we see on Twitter, and we see on every single platform day to day. It is so, so, so important that the youth gets mobilized as a coalition and the biggest coalition of youth LGBTQ voters to ever come to this country and get Trump out of office. A vote for Biden and Harris is a vote for change, and that's, you know, something we really need as LGBTQ members in this country. Even the small steps like seeing Senator Harris have pronouns in her bio is something that is giving so much hope to having to, to LGBTQ youth across the country who really do not have anyone to look to. You know, with this ticket, we are quite literally saving lives of LGBTQ folks who are young and who might not be supported by their families or, or anyone at all. So please join me and the High School Democrats of America at hsdems.org um, in voting for Biden-Harris this fall um, and, you know, supporting Dems up and down the ballot. Thank you so much, Earl, for this opportunity. It really does mean a lot. Thank you. You think if a heterosexual kid got up and talked about the importance of abortion or abstinence, that wouldn't make the news. But they had a kid talk about sex. That's what he was there for. To the article about mermaids, this comes from Feminist Current. Last week, the Guardian reported that 17-year-old boy who was living life entirely as a girl has been removed from his mother's care after a ruling by a high court. At the first read, it was unclear who the actors in the case were, aside from the obvious mother, father, child. The judgment of the case was included a critique of the Section 37 report prepared by Social Services, which Justin Hayden describes as a very disturbing reading, though. It begins to clarify that Justin Hayden writes that Jay's mother caused significant emotional harm to her child and critiques the local authorities, social service staff responsible for the youngster's welfare. He goes on to detail the acts of controlling mother towards her child, M's personal diagnosis of Jay's alleged gender dysphoria, and a system which failed this child. Together, these various failures demonstrate a pattern of abuse and a mother who, Hayden writes, deprived her son of his fundamental right to exercise autonomy in the basic ways. And it goes on to say it comes from this mermaid society in the UK that is just like what we have with Glad and everything else, pushing all the fucking gay shit down on kids. But that's not child abuse. No, not at all. Not child abuse. Not at all. But the best way to sum up the militant gay part of the Democratic wing that wants to erase God, make everybody fucking make their kids turn into the opposite sex so we never procreate again, is this cat from Ohio. I'm very privileged to introduce our next speaker, Travis Nelson of Oregon. He's one such person. A nurse, a union representative, an Oregon Nurses Association and Teamsters member, which as a Teamster lawyer is near and dear to my heart, uh, and a member of the Democratic National Committee, Travis is a fighter for social justice. Whether it's as a precinct captain, as chair of the Oregon Democratic Party Black Caucus, or many of his other uh, volunteer efforts, Travis is one busy guy. To speak about the intersection of LGBTQ and labor rights, I'm proud to introduce someone that I've come to know uh, Travis Nelson, thank you very much for the opportunity to introduce you. Wow. Thank you, Lawrence, for the kind introduction. And I want to say thank you to you, Earl, and Van for your tremendous leadership of the LGBTQ plus caucus. It's been an honor serving on the DNC with you over these last four years. So 
When Earl first asked me to speak and told me that I had five minutes, I thought a lot about all of the things that I could talk about in my five minutes. In the end, I decided to boil my remarks down to three points. One, I want you all to know that unions are under attack and workers are under attack in this country. The collective strength of unions is the only thing keeping corporations from completely running over the working class, and Trump and most Republicans know this. Trump ran for office telling unions that he was our candidate. He promised to be a good president for the poor and working class. And what did he do when he came into office? He appointed Supreme Court justices and NLRB members who crippled unions and protections for workers. He cut taxes on the wealthy and corporations, shifting the tax burden to the poor and working class, crippling the Affordable Care Act and the social safety net along the way. Four more years of Trump would be a disaster for our country. Can you imagine what the world would look like if 45 got to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court? That's a world that I don't even want to think about. But look, unions just don't lift up the wages of union workers. As a nurse, I've seen this on vivid display in areas where we have union hospitals. Wages and benefits are better, even at non-union hospitals, because of the upward pressure on wages that workers who have come together to collectively bargain exert. Even if you aren't in a union, you should support them. Two. Two. If you aren't in a union, get one. Contact your local AFL-CIO office or your regional labor council for more information. And if you are in a union, get engaged. At their core, unions are democracies. But just like America, unions have their problems. Racism, homophobia, sexism. Trust me, I know. I also know that people of color and LGBTQIA plus folks have to get engaged to make unions better. Run for an office in your local. Join a committee. Fight for equality and non-discrimination language in your collective bargaining agreement. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Ask, what does your union do for Pride Month? How is your union taking a stand for black trans lives? What is your union doing for LGBTQ plus uh, youth who are homeless? If you have been happy pandus, sitting on the sidelines, get up and get in the game. Your union needs your voice. Three, now let's be frank. You're likely here because you're either a big Joe Biden supporter or you don't want four more years of Trump. Either way, you recognize the importance of getting Agent 45 out of the White House. And please know that you are needed. Too often, LGBTQ plus people are silenced, made to feel less than, and are fearful as a result of marginalization. Donald Trump has done nothing to make that better. But you know what? Joe Biden will. He has promised to sign the Equality Act, which would ban LGBTQ plus discrimination nationally. He will work hard to expand protections for trans and non-binary Americans. So, when you leave this convention and go home, oh wait, you're already home.
join a phone bank, do a lit drop, or take some type of meaningful action to make a difference this November. Hopefully that'll be with your union. You know, I was watching the caucus meeting on Tuesday with Mayor Pete, and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, progress isn't permanent. And, you know, I believe him. It's not. We are only one Supreme Court justice away from witnessing marriage equality and other civil rights protections being stripped away. So I want to thank you for being delegates. I want to thank you for being leaders in your communities. And I want to thank you for fighting for a fairer America. Remember, no one is coming to save us from what we've experienced over these last three years and 213 days. We are the change we've been waiting for. So go forth and do everything that you can to get Joe Biden elected the next president of the United States. Thank you to caucus leadership. That's their platform and they hit it. The gay rights and all this militant transgenderism, that's their platform, but they fucking hit it. They hit it all because that's what the media does. Yet if any of this kind of stuff got out, that we're going to force people to do anything, that we're going to force Christianity on people, do you not think the media would go crazy if the RNC did that? They will probably make a big deal about them talking about God too much. You can bet on that. So, going to music break. Got this last night from Tucker, and it is pretty disturbing. I had the wake the fuck up. I believe we played that. Um, we were going to play it this podcast, so I'll play it in conjunction with the Tucker. But it's even worse of what he found on the streets in Portland. You'll then come into Stephanie Rule lying profusely about what BLM is and fuck Goodyear. Yeah, fuck Goodyear. Last Sunday in Portland, Oregon, a man authorities have identified as 25-year-old Marquise Love brutally beat another man, Adam Hainer, during that city's never-ending riots. We showed you the tape the other night. We're going to show it to you again. It's real. It happened. The other networks don't want you to see it. Here it is. Back up. Back up. Back up, bro. Sit down. Sit down. Sit the down. Hey, bro, you're not leaving, bro. You ain't going nowhere. Hey, put your down. Get your down, bro. Chill, 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 chill. Chill, chill. This morning, authorities in Portland took Marquise Love into custody. There was a manhunt for him. They finally got him. He faces felony assault and riot charges. Hainer, the victim, said he tried to help someone who was being mugged. He believes he was targeted by the mob because of his skin color. Now, this story is an awful story, but it's more than about just one beating. It's about punishing normal people for the crime of living their lives in peace, which most of them do. As long as there is suffering anywhere, the mob believes, there must be suffering everywhere. So watch as rioters terrorize local residents in Portland this week for flying American flags on their porches. Right here is another example of white men feeling comfortable. I bet you you've never had a struggle in your life. You're fucked. 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 You're
These are explicit racial attacks. This is explicit racial harassment. Would the country ever put up with this in any other context? No. But the Justice Department stands by. The local authorities stand by. Our media stands by. Democratic politicians stand by. Even Republicans. No one says anything. What did the people sleeping in their homes do wrong exactly? Well, nothing. They never attacked anybody. They didn't even fight back against the people screaming at them. All they're doing is living in peace, but that's not allowed. In Portland, major cities everywhere, you are not allowed to do that if they don't like the way you look. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot wants you to know that rioting is good. She's totally for rioting. She's allowed it in her city for many weeks now. But you're not allowed to do it near where she lives. Watch. I'm not going to make any uh, excuses for the fact that the, given the threats that I personally received, given the threats to my home and my family, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure uh, that they um, are protected. And I, I make no apologies whatsoever for that. And I have an obligation to keep my home, my wife, my 12-year-old, and my neighbors safe. Well, to Lori Lightfoot, having a safe neighborhood is sort of like getting a haircut. No one is entitled to one except Lori Lightfoot. Meanwhile, scenes like this are playing out currently across your country. Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. To come, excuse me, the National Guard to come in and help. Illinois Republican Congressman Darren LaHood has said, bring in the National Guard, they can back the police. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot said, no, not in my city. What do you think? I agree with him. I think there are times where we need the National Guard. Uh, we're not only experiencing uh, looting and rioting and things of that sort, but 
on the south side and west side of Chicago, we have an extreme amount of violence uh, being uh, being that's being done. And so we need to help make sure that our community stays safe. And whatever it takes to make sure that our community is in a safe place so that children are not being shot. I don't know how many people realize it, but we've had quite a, a bit of children to be shot in Chicago. And that in America uh, should never be something that we just take lightly. And it should not be something that we just allow to happen. We do need as much help as possible uh, to solve the issues of violence in the city of Chicago. Some people in Chicago say a police shooting in your neighborhood is what sparked the looting we saw in downtown Chicago. You say that it was something that was probably going to happen with or without a shooting. What did you mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, you have Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and let me say this. I, I understand um, the message, Black Lives Matter. But the movement is so um, different than what we want in our community. And they're calling for things to be done that most of the people in our community, especially the leaders in our community, uh, we don't want to happen. We, we do not believe that looting is the solution. We do not believe that looting is reparations. We do not believe that looting is the way to solve the problem. And so those are things that they're promoting and those are things that people uh, that they're listening to, especially the, the millennials, some of the younger people. And so Black Lives Matter has a lot to say. Uh, about the movement and about the, the what's going on in our community. But I say uh, that we cannot tolerate that. We cannot allow that because that is not uh, the Chicago way and it's definitely not the American way. But let's be clear, Black Lives Matter isn't calling for looting. Well, you had uh, the person who was in charge of Black Lives Matter locally say that looting is okay that looting is okay as far as uh, looting uh it's okay uh if they loot it's okay because it's reparations because these companies have insurance that is not okay at any time in any way looting is not okay uh pastor brooks thank you so much for joining me this morning pride on their face covering shirts and wristbands that will be deemed approved because it complies with zero tolerance stand. However, if any associate wears all blue White Lives Matter shirts or face covering, covering, that will be not appropriate. The unidentified speaker says the rules were created to make a better work environment. There's rules now around what you can wear. Um, let's try to comply with these so that way uh, you know everybody feels good in this, this factory. I want to make sure, guys, think about what we do in this factory, right? We all work together to make tires. That's what we do. That's what we get paid to do. So let's continue to do that and do the right thing. Keep this place uh, what it's always been, a good place to work. Now, I put the money shot up front because Goodyear is going to skip back off this, but there's audio. And it broke because station WIBW showed it was said was a photo taken from a seminal deliver a seminars, I think what they meant to say, delivered to employees in diversity training seminar conducted at Topeka plant. The slideshow the slide shows what the corporate policy is regarding acceptable display of support by employees. The slide in the photograph shows what the company deems acceptable and unacceptable under a heading zero tolerance. WIBW Goodyear has released a statement after employees said the slide presented in a 
training was discriminatory. Goodyear employees say new zero tolerance policy is discriminatory. And the slide says acceptable BLM, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender pride. Unacceptable blue lives, all my lives, mega political affiliated slogans or material. Because I guess those aren't. This is kind of a conflicting message. It's not at all helped by the official statement released by the company. Goodyear is committed to fostering an inclusive and respectful workplace where all our associates can do their best in spirit of teamwork. As far as this commitment, we do allow our associates to express their support on racial injustice and other equity issues, but ask that they refrain from workplace expressions, verbal or otherwise, in support of political campaigning for any candidate or political party, as well as other similar forms of advocacy that fall outside the scope of the equity issues. They brainwash the world. They believe it's about equality. It's a fucking, it isn't. It's their way of Trojan horsing all their politics. This is some marvelous corporate doublespeak. They allow support of equity issues, but also declare not all equity issues are created equal, so some are banned. It's also a mystery how BLM is not considered political, but it's political to say Blue Lives Matter at the same time. Matt Walsh nails them. Goodyear brags that it's a leader in providing tires for police cars, even as it bans its employees from expressing support for police. We are the recognized leader for police pursuit tires as the OE fitment on every new police vehicle on the market. And they have a picture of a cop car. Cardiff Giant. Goodyear is good with taking money for the police, but not okay showing any support of police. Goodyear, a message from Rich Kramer. By now, you're aware of the visual from our Topeka factory that has been circulating in the media. I want to personally clear the record on what you are seeing and hearing. Uh, The slide in question was created by a plain employee. Try to explain was acceptable to wear in a workplace. The slide was not approved or distributed by Goodyear. I deeply regret the impression it's created and want to clarify our position. First, to be clear, Goodyear does not endorse, or excuse me, yeah, endorse any political organization, party, or candidate. We have a long-standing corporate policy that asks associates to refrain from workplace expressions in support of any candidate or political party. Second, Goodyear strongly supports our law enforcement partners and deeply appreciates all they do to put their tire, their lives on the line each and every day. Blah, blah, blah. That's a lie. We have clarified our policy to make it clear associates can express support for law enforcement through apparel at Goodyear facilities. The core of our company is our people in our culture blah 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 suck a fucking dick sean davis goodyear is still trying to pretend that it didn't endorse a marxist group blm or ban employees from wearing blue lives matter stuff others response is too late and no amount of crisis management will change what this company did blaming on a nameless plan employee is rich what you do speak so loudly people cannot hear a word you're saying other one, the Marxist BLM that want to defund the police so you can fuck right off. Goodyear again. Yesterday, Goodyear became the focus of conversation that created some misconceptions about our policies and our company. Goodyear has always wholeheartedly supported both equity and law enforcement and will continue to do so. Yesterday, Goodyear, blah, blah, blah. blah. First, the visual question was not created, distributed by Goodyear. It's just a regurge of the same thing. Lennox O'Birdley. Ironically, they never stayed the image floating around is fake. <laughs> they just said it wasn't from corporate. 
Notice how they say what the slide wasn't, but not what the slide was. <laughs> Brucci, this is a really weird statement. So where did the visual come from? And they go on to confirm that police does actually exist, allowing racial justice expression, or policy does exist, that allows racial uh, injustice expression, which are inherently political, but not expression to support a police. Then they turn off replies. So can your employees still wear a BLM shirt, but not a Blue Lives shirt? For the record, I'm fine with any of the above. An employee has the right to set their culture and uniform. Consumers have the option to let the influence their purchase. Kyle Rashiko, advocacy that fall outside the racial justice and equality. In other words, viewpoint discrimination. No misconception at all. Cowardly not to allow replies to your BS tweet. Prager U, translation. Employees may use their free speech to support BLM and racial injustice because causes but nothing else thanks for clarifying that you're doubling down goodyear p.s it's utmost not upmost. maybe use some of that diversity training for english matt walsh wow leaked audio proves the goodyear statement was bogus it also shows the discriminatory policy is worse than first reported and actually discriminates on explicitly racist gra- racial grounds which is definitely illegal not to mention racist audible laughter in the background I know what the worker think of this policy. That's what I played for you. Can you imagine if GY had said you can wear blue or white lives matter, but couldn't wear black lives matter? Then this would be a huge story, but the media ignores it. Best part about this? Goodyear stock nosedives. Sean Davis Goodyear's recent financial performance has been abysmal. Over the last two years, the work tire, the woke tire stock has underperformed the market by a whopping 104%. Goodyear's stock price has fallen 60%, while the NASDAQ has increased by 43%. Goodyear's stock price is down over 4% just today. Just today. I won't put a pair of Goodyear's tires on my car ever. They're good tires. I mean, I use Nitto for my Jeep, and I got um, Firestone for the wife's car when I replaced them. But that's that's our world. The Trojan horse is just like it's just like Biden's speech. I'm for everybody. The Trojan horse is BLM and Glad and all that shit, but it's expressly political because their sheer message is. If you don't vote for Democrats, you're killing us. That's our message. Then we have a New York Times editor that decided to go after the guy who shot Bin Laden. April, reign of April. This is a Delta flight, and I know that CEO Ed Bastion has been very clear about the need to wear a mask or be removed from a flight for the safety of the passengers. Mr. I'm not a pussy, MC Huya deleted this pic on Delta flight in which he flouted not wearing a mask. He also tweet, deleted the tweet for one minute before that, confirming he wasn't wearing a mask, I guess he's worried about the return flight. Amber Athey, New York Times editor, tells the Navy SEAL who killed Bin Laden that he's not willing to sacrifice beyond parody. And it is. Then we had the Lori Lightfoot, you can't go on my block, which I played in the Tucker montage. Doug Powers, these Dems are all the biggest hypocrites in the universe. B, any reporter care to ask why her home wouldn't be secure if the protests were peaceful? Anybody out there? Because they never asked that question. 
New York Post decided to go after the guy that got beat in Portland. Portland beatdown victim posted anti-George Floyd meme hours before assault. Problem is, online, he's a member of Antifa. He is not a white conservative like they tried to make it look like. Sar Beckett Adams, did you see what he was wearing? That's what they're doing. Cairo 7, mob would not allow me to do my job today when trying to videotape Casey Jail in Seattle. I tried to leave, but they surrounded my car, put items on the windows, and continued to terrorize me. One man threatened to break my vehicle windows and come to my home. We are just trying to do our jobs. Media, especially Brian Seltzer, ignored this. You, 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 you got to stop threatening me, sir. No, no, come to your house. I heard. Yeah. Don't make me break this window. Keep filming and I win. Hey, audio of the seven-year-old nice try democrats but this is who you are biden supporters attack seven-year-old boy for wearing trump hat benny is where i got it moments ago outside the dnc convention joe biden supporters attacked a seven-year-old he was attacked simply because he wore a mega hat his name is riley watch it happen listen to him cry will joe condemn this violence against children other responses will biden at least condemn this violence we know he was far too busy during his pretty little speech last night to mention the riots and violence his party has inflicted on our country. But surely, caring, compassionate, sweet old moderate Biden will speak out about two frothy mouth hyenas who haven't showered in a week attacking a child. They didn't. Benny, you cannot condemn this. You are truly lost. James Wood. We are Democrats. I'm going to play it with Antifa somewhere. I couldn't find where. Killing a raccoon. Because I guess raccoons are racist too.
Most people remark they should just be running ads for this. This is all the RNC should do, really. I mean, and I'm not a Republican. I'm just saying this isn't normal. This is not acceptable. This is not how it should be. But yet it is. And the media is silent. Chicago holding anti-cop break the piggy bank rally at a public high school. They show people whacking Pigs, Saturday, August 22nd, today. BLM Chicago, no justice, no peace to fund the police. Break the piggy bank on August 22nd, 6 p.m. at the Whitney Young High School. Meet us there as we and our comrades demand to fund CPAC now, cops out CPS. Check out the 11 demands. One, the city council defunds CPD by 75%. Immediate CPD budget cuts, including stops on new hiring, weapons purchases, and firing cops with multiple misconduct complaints. Three, that the city council passes CPAC. Four, CPD out of CPS. Five, CPD off the CTA and out of other public institutions so we can continue robbing them. Six, a stop to the West Garfield Park Cop Academy. Seven, that CPD decommissions the racist and arbitrary gang database and eliminate the criminal enterprise database. So you can't punish them. Eight, the closure of Homan Square and all other CPD black sites. Nine, that city council cease all negotiation with the Fraternal Order Police. Ten, a stop to asset forfeiture ending CPD's ability to seize people's property because they committed crimes and drugs and all the other things. Eleven, that public and private institutions that defend black lives immediately cut ties with CPD and disband their private police and surveillance firms. We basically just want to be able to do whatever the fuck we can to destroy this country. Gerald Byer, the Chicago chapter BLM is promoting rally, break the piggy bank. The promo features a protester getting ready to use a sign to whack a pig dressed like a police officer. Oh, William Ayers, as in Weather Underground, Bill Ayers has retweeted about this same rally. As punted out by me, 130, this event is being held at a public school. And theirs had a machete in it. When they re-aired it. Then we have the mentality. And this is a white guy. Daniel Singer from San Francisco. Broken into again. Professional operation. Why do we allow this to be status quo? He asked D.A. Chess Bowden. Who in case you weren't aware. Was adopted and raised by Bill Ayers. And Burdain Dorr. After his biological parents. Were sent to prison for murdering and robbery. To do something about it. Please actually prosecute these people this time. These crimes matter more so than going after DoorDash and Postmates. Andrew Sampson, CEO of gaming app Rainway, 
points out the problem won't go away until people in the Bay Area are willing to address the root causes. This is not a one-off. This is the left. This is what they truly believe. His tweet. And you can find it at Andrew MD5. Because barrier folks refuse to pay taxes, push homeless shelter on their neighborhoods, fight against social programs that help the local populace suffer from addiction, and participate in gentrification, which is skyrocketing up real estate prices. This will continue. Somebody says, this is the most absurd take I've heard since our last president joined, shaming people for wanting to keep the majority of their earnings. Bay Area folks refuse to pay taxes. Andrew Sampson again. Of course, there's an entitlement and privilege that comes with it all. Someone breaking into your house should make you question why they felt that was their only choice and how the system has failed them. A reply, holy shit, I'm actually actually voicing this batshit crazy opinion in a public forum, forum, then doubling down. His double down. Because this is such a controversial take, allow me to state it again. If people break into your home, remember physical goods are replaceable. And question why the system is failing the individual who commit these nonviolent crimes and how we should work together to improve it. A liberal lady. I have three daughters at home. If you break into my home, the only thing I will be remembering is where my closest weapon is. And the only thing I'll be questioning is how quickly I can ensure safety for my children. This is down to the root of the Democratic politician. This is Senator Tom Carper talking to an, one of his staffers. My alpha. What the fuck? If that was a conservative, that would be front page news. Senator Rubio talks this way. It's atrocious. And understand this violence section could go on for another two hours. I got shit all day. All I gotta do is log into Twitter and find people getting beat the fuck down. It's what they do. That's why I don't know how anybody can even vote for the Democrats. They talk about fascism, but they're fascist. And they have brown shirts in the street doing it. So, I want to prep our soundbite of the day as we start to wrap up this podcast. Nicholas Fondaro, oops. Van Joan let the cat out of the bag. Joseph Cart, two things are certain. Biden could have said literally nothing for an hour, and it was going to be good. And two, Trump could announce a cure for cancer in his speech. And it will be dark. The never, narrative never changes. Lily McKim, good God almighty, sometimes the truth just slips right off, so-called media tongue. They know. They absolutely know Biden is not capable. They know Biden is senile. And they know Biden will not debate and declining very fast, but still want him to become president. Adam in Texas. It was a terrible speech. They just praise it because Biden managed to not mess up the delivery. Well, my gosh, what can I say except, Debbie, you're going to Paris, so this is the final answer heard all around the world. He's won a million dollars. And we were prepared for it to be a terrible speech. As long as he didn't embarrass himself, we were going to come out here and praise it. You don't have to make nothing up tonight. Joe Biden did that thing tonight. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And there it is. 
There it fucking is. They were going to praise it regardless. So we're going to go to This is America. It's Louis Dreyfus. This fear-mongering was all they talked about all week. It's all the media talks about. And I once again forward to you, if you're a liberal out there, what has Trump actually done? You haven't let him do anything. He hasn't accomplished a single thing on his list. You blocked it all. So how again is he destroying America and democracy? This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing liberal agenda stories. This is America in 2019. We are here tonight to celebrate Joe Biden's nomination as a Democratic candidate for president. I have gotten to know both Joe and Kamala on the trail over the past year. The way you really get to know a person when the cameras are off, the crowds are gone, it's just you and them. They're real people. They understand the problems we face. They are parents and patriots who want the best for us in our country. And if we give them the chance, they will fight for us and our families every single day. Our future is now, and it is daunting. But I ask you tonight to join me to help Joe and Kamala fight for the promise of America, turn the page for our country, and lead us forward to a future we'll actually be proud to leave to our children. And now I'd like to turn it over to a great Democrat who will be with us throughout the evening. Between the two of us, we have 11 Emmys. How's that for math? One of my favorite actresses, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Hey, Julia. (laughs) Hi, Andrew. I'm so glad to see you. So what did you think about Kamala Harris's speech last night? It was tremendous. I was so happy for her. I know. Me too. She's fabulous. I cannot wait to see her debate our current vice president, Mika Pines. Or uh, is it Paints? It's pronounced Ponce, I believe. Oh, some kind of weird foreign name? Yeah, not very American sounding. Yeah, that's what people are saying strongly. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew. And please give my regards to the gang. I will. They're right in the next room. Have a great night, Julia. Thank you so much. Good evening, America, and welcome to the fourth night of the 2020 Democratic National Convention, Uniting America. Okay, these last few nights have been going so well, we've decided to add a fifth night where we will just play Michelle Obama's speech on a loop. I, uh, I first met Joe Biden when I was doing my show, Veep. I played the vice president, and he was in fact, the vice president, and we hit it off immediately. Soon after, I was asked to be on the cover of a magazine. Remember those? And I was so excited. It was like, oh, what's it going to be, People or Vogue or Rolling Stone? Well, it turns out it was for Arrive, the official onboard magazine of Amtrak, which nobody ever reads, even though it's free. And the day it came out, My phone rang, and it was the vice president telling me he loved the cover and the whole article and that it was one of the best issues of Arrive he had ever read. And that is just one of the many reasons that I wanted to be here tonight for Joe. And to remind you that Joe Biden not only knows how to read, but also he reads everything. 
You know, I am no policy expert, and I certainly don't pretend to be one, but I have a gut feeling about fairness and what's right, and that is why I am so excited that just in a little while we're going to hear from Joe Biden about his plans for America, plans for a strong economy that helps working people and small businesses, not just billionaires, and plans to raise the wages for the nurses and teachers and grocery workers that are getting us through this crisis. God love them. So, how can you help Joe? It's super simple. Vote. Right now, you can text VOTE to 30330 to learn about all of your voting options and make the best plan for how to vote in your community, wherever you are. An easy way to remember 30330 is that's the year Donald Trump will finally release his tax returns. If we all vote, there is nothing Facebook Fox News and Vladimir Putin can do to stop us. But first, let's reaffirm the all-American values that our party and Joe Biden stand for. It's all narrative, my friend. Narrative. Other horrible things that fall in our This Is America. Operation Legend takes dozens of killers off the street, track down thousands of fugitives. This happened this week. No reporting on it. There were... Um, 1,500 arrests, 1,485 to be precise. Many of those arrests are violent state crimes, including 90 homicides like Legend's Murderer. That's more than 90 suspect killers who might still be on the streets. In Kansas City alone, 18 homicide suspects and 70 illegal firearms confiscated. And your media was silent. Because it was narrative time, a mini woke, no soundbite, no little freaking background music. These are the articles that ran this week. Because we're not just on the narrative that the DNC convection was fantastic. It was all liberal all the time. CNN ran an article, black newborns more likely to die when looked after by white doctors. There's no proof of that. They just ran it because of white privilege and shit. Garrett, Jerry Brown, we all know about the rolling blackouts they're having in California because they are 36% renewable. Sorry, I had to get a drink. 36% renewable. It basically can't keep up with their population. Jerry Brown, hey, California, we can avoid a blackout. Turn your thermostat up. Multiple articles to have your thermostat on 78 degrees. Andy Richter, my power's out, so I checked the Burbank Power website. They have an energy savings tip, one of which was sent to your thermostat no lower than 78. It's currently 77 in my house, and I'm sweating like a pig. At 78, why even have air conditioning? Why? Miserable. Then we had the reverse LGBT cake thing. Lesbian baker exercises First Amendment right not to bake a cake with message she found offensive. Fred, I have to say I side with the baker. She's not obligated to do anything. Jason Hairston, I think it's ultra petty to place that order. No one's going to stir up controversy. Just send the order to another baker. Which is what 
we say, but, you know, whatever. Time to launch a multi-year campaign to destroy her and her business. Are we expecting a reversal of role here? Conservatives yelling, bake the cake, and liberals yelling that she has a First Amendment right? Or will people be consistent with previously stated views? I'm not betting on consistency. And it wasn't. The left was all about, she has that right. But you don't. As a conservative. Or a Christian, specifically. Christians are the lowest form of fucking Americans. You know it. That's how they treat them. Other weird things. During remote school in some liberal states, they had virtual fire drills. I'm not making that up. But the worst thing, and I probably would have spent an hour on this, was Netflix brought out an awards-winning from Sundance show called Cuties. That sexualizes 11-year-old girls. The left even found this inappropriate. So, uh, Schneider LC, Netflix premiering Cuties on September 9th. There's a plot summary. The promotional image is 11-year-olds dressed in clothing inappropriate for adults. So bad I won't tweet it. I can't believe we need to say pedophilia is wrong, but so many went to Epstein's Island. Cuties. Amy 11 becomes fascinated with twerking dance crew. Hoping to join them, she starts to explore femininity, femininity denying defying her family's traditions. 11-year-olds don't need to know about their femininity. I've raised a daughter. Netflix, Cuties, a coming-of-age tale for Mia Mona DeCour, my moon's at. She has a Twitter account. What the fuck? And a Sundance winner from earlier this year. It's coming Netflix, 9 September. Carmine Sabia, a lefty. This is what the Democrat culture is bringing you. Netflix brings you a show titled Cuties. It is about 11-year-old girls twerking. This is abhorrent. She took the red pill this year. Metro Entertainment, the award-winning film's Cutie premiered at Sundance in January, but now it's getting Netflix released. There's major backlash. Backlash. Matt Walsh. Netflix has a movie called Cuties about 11-year-olds in a twerking dance group. Some of the reviews claim it's a com- commentary on the sexualization of children, but this is the poster. And keep in mind that the lead actress is actually 11 years old in the film and real life. It is in a fucking appropriate. Inappropriate. 
so inappropriate. Sorry, I had to check to see my wife sent something to me. Sister Outrider. It is so revealing that the first major Netflix original to center young black girls hinges on explicitly sexualizing 11-year-old children. Whether it's acting or music, a sexualized image is too often the price of mainstream success for black women and girls. Disgraceful. Sister Outrider again. There are countless stories Netflix could have chosen to tell about young girls going on adventures, supporting one another, and being children. But with cuties, Netflix teaches girls to view themselves as sex objects. And that's not remotely acceptable. Oh, really? Do we remember this from last podcast? A dramatic reading of Cardi B. WAP. Whores in the house. There's some whores... In this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass pussy. Make that pullout game weak. woo Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you fucking with some wet ass pussy. Bring a bucket and mop up for this wet ass pussy. Give me everything you got for this wet ass pussy. That's what you put out. That's what the kids hear. Tom Holland, this seems bizarre, both morally and commercially. It's creeping out over children that one taboo everyone agrees should not be eased. But folks, are you dense? Have you not seen all the Netflix shows with little boys being sexualized, little girls being sexualized? Has anybody paid attention to this shit or is it just me? It's what they've been doing for years. The convention had a 17-year-old there talking about sexual rights. That's not legal. Of legal age. Am I wrong? Is it me? The entire left is based on preying on children indoctrinating him into you're a racist if you're white, you have privilege if you're white, and you don't deserve to have a place at the table. It's what they do. It's the only way they can have a following because all of their ideas are not supported by the country. We don't want open borders. We want are police. We want weapons. That's left and right now because you are letting the streets turn into a fucking hellhole. We want our private health insurance. None of this is what Americans want. It never has been what Americans want. 
That's why every fucking election cycle we have every four years in America, there is a crafted narrative. I know I'm wearing it out, but that is all it is. They build a narrative that they're forward thinking. They only project left stuff to make you think, well, I believe in God, but I must be an outliner because they don't believe in God. We should have seven-year-olds chop off their fucking genitalia and be the opposite one. Man, maybe we are all racist fucks, and I should put myself in the shoes of African-Americans who are out in the street destroying shit and harassing people and waking them up at night. Oh, wait a minute. They don't show that. We don't even air that violence. Nobody's aired the fucking Antifa member getting beat down in Portland for protecting a transgender person because only white supremacists attack people of color, BIPOCs, and LGBT. Not the left. Only white supremacists beat up grandmas with fucking walkers and BLM signs. Not the left. It's all narrative. They can't talk about policies. That's why in 2016, you didn't hear Hillary on that stage talk about federalizing and repealing the Hyde Amendment, just like Biden wants to do. You didn't hear Hillary talk about, we're going to increase Project Choke Point, ban ARs, make everybody get a fucking license, and oh, by the way, put so many red flag laws that you can just call the cops if you have them still in your area now, and they're going to take away your guns. She didn't talk about that. They never talk about their policies. And what they hate about Trump is that he does. He outright says, I'm going to increase law enforcement. I'm going to increase the border. I'm going to make it harder for people to come in the country. And now we will go into next week and by Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday when I do the next podcast, because I'm saying right now, I'm going to do it on Tuesday the 25th, which I probably won't. I'll probably wait to the 27th. The narrative will be, it's a dark, ominous, America sucks, they're so negative, it's fascist, he wants to implement stuff that people don't want. They're going to whip out polls saying that nobody believes in what he believes. And by the end of the week, there'll be no reason to do debates. We're not going to do those debates because we know we can't put them on the same stage. And we're going to go to the election not talking about anything. And this is the same media that used to say under Bush and under Reagan, we're not talking about, they're just talking about fear-mongering. They really don't care about this. I mean, the narrative, once again, I miss the most important. Everybody's racist if you vote right. You don't love democracy if you vote right. You don't care about gay people if you vote right. But me, I always keep in the back of my mind None of their polls include people that are going to vote for Trump. None of their polls include people that are in red states. None of their polls talk to actual people. And the average American is worse now than they were in 2016 on the fear of talking truth and saying, 
I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because the left's so goddamn extreme. I'm scared of them now. I'm scared of the rioter fucking brown shirt wearing, goose stepping motherfuckers tearing up our cities. I'm scared to give up my police. I'm scared to give up my guns. I'm scared to open the borders. I'm scared to not have an immigration policy and make everybody legal. I don't want to give up my fucking health insurance. Because what they've done is gone too far. They've made it now. You say those things, you lose your job, you get doxxed. Your whole life gets fucked up because you spoke truth. But the only place they can't control is the voting booth. So that's why they're going after that. Mail in. We'll just chuck these districts in the trash. We'll make sure these people over here vote doesn't count in the districts we need to win for the Senate and the House. Because mind you, they're talking about Biden. But to make it run, they have to take the Senate. If they don't take the Senate, they can't do this. And that's what they really want. Because every one of those crazy far left, nobody fucking in America, in a majority wants policies, are just sitting there. They're going to revote and send it up. That's the left. And because they believe they're smarter than you, they know better than you, that they have the ability to tell you what to think, how to speak, what to drive, what to eat. Put your AC on 80 and shut the fuck up. That's a privileged position to want AC. They believe that's what they need to do. To save America from you people that won't evolve into our voting block. For you that don't see, you have no right to have that car. You have no right to have that house. You have no right to have food on your table. You have no right to have any positions, possessions. Possessions are replaceable, but black people are dying everywhere, every second of every day in America because of racism, though they can't prove any of that. There is a transgender genocide in our streets. They can't prove that, so they ignore the veteran one that still happens at 17 a day. From here until November, the narrative is already set. Joe Biden will save America. People that want America to be saved vote for Joe Biden. Donald Trump is destroying the democracy Anybody who votes for Trump is an unpatriotic, piece-of-shit, bigot, sexist, homophobe, transphobe that wants to destroy America. There will be beatings. There will be jury rigging. They're going to steal this fucking election through voter suppression by telling you there's no way he can win. And by mail-in ballots. And if you don't believe that, You need to fucking research because the reality is it was Democrats who stopped voting ballots because they knew it didn't work. It was too fungible. So they got rid of it. And now they're bringing it back and the media should point that out, but they're not going to point that out. They're not going to point out any facts 
as Van Jones says, they were going to come out there and say it was the greatest speech ever, regardless of what he did. He could have sat and blown fucking bubbles. It's election season. The narrative means more than facts and freedom of speech. So this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please share this with your family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOP Podcast, gmail.com. Get this show on SoundCloud, Pocket Static, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Down, and Pocket Cast. Remember to check out the Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. As stated, let's just shoot for a Thursday. We're going to go 27 August, year of our Lord, 2020, Thursday podcast. And try to wrap up the media coverage of the RNC. Because I will guarantee dark, foreboding vision of America. It is so un-American. And you can guarantee Nick Sandman will make the press. They are going to carry what he says and demonize that child one more time. So yeah... I'm not for it. He shouldn't be speaking. But I'll carry what he does. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah, yeah. Spend some time with your family and tune back in Thursday for another exciting episode. As always, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at Fop Podcast and Twitter account at Fop Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Makes every day count. I'm the sun and the air. I'm the shyness that is criminal in Baltimore.